Well, yes, I've, I, I'm officially of legal drinking age. It was Friday. Friday was the day. However, I guess we're retroactively celebrating here in the KREF studios today. But, yes, officially you are 21. Like, seriously, though, you're like 24 or 5, 24, right? 24, 24, yeah. Gosh, dang. See, to you, it's probably like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm 24. I'm, I'm getting old. And to me, it's like, wow, hasn't even really broken into the uh, – I mean, you're in the real world. Don't get me wrong. But, gosh, 24 so young, man. It is. Does everyone keep telling you that? And you're like, no, it's really not. I mean, to be honest, yes. I've heard a lot <laughs> of that same sentiment. To me, though, like it just feels like the last five birthdays have all been the exact same yeah. in a certain sense. Like once you hit 20 – I feel like you feel the exact same for I, I don't know how long, but every well, one of like the last five birthdays has felt the exact same to me. Yeah, they'll feel the exact same until about 30. Right? That makes and sense. Then, and then they slowly get more and more painful uh, with each and every passing birthday. So enjoy it, man. That's awesome. Happy birthday. Man, uh, we had all kinds of stuff happen over the weekend. We XFL. Did kicked off their their first weekend and <laughs> i i don't know i know there's always a lot of haters out there whenever it comes to any of the other startup leagues other than the nfl but that went about as good as it could have gone didn't it i'll be honest i didn't pay a whole lot of attention teddy just because i think with any professional football league in america that tries to step up and challenge the nfl like we just haven't seen anything catch on in yeah. years and years and years. Ever since the old USFL back in, what, the 80s? It's been about since then, uh, since we had a professional football brand that wasn't the NFL attain yeah. some legitimacy in the public eye. So I caught a little bit of a couple of the games on Saturday, but for the most part, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention just because, man, I want to see if they can get past the first season because, yeah. especially in recent years, we've seen so many leagues crop up and then fold after one year. Well, yeah, that'll be the challenge. I think they're going to be good. You know, the, the last time around with the XFL, COVID did them in, uh, not saying it would have worked under that ownership and, and the plan that they had going, but they got a really good TV deal right now. Uh, and that's that's what you've got to have, ABC, ESPN, kind of all over the place. And they had a good weekend. Coach Stoops got a W, a couple of defensive touchdowns. That was fun to see. Some OU guys out there making plays. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Man, that OU men's basketball game against Texas – was about the most painful thing I've I've seen a, a team go through because I don't know maybe I'm the only one but and and maybe this is bad on my end but I was watching the whole thing thinking it's it's they're they're going to collapse Texas is going to catch fire something is going to happen here and um, I don't know man I I love watching them fight they're they're a fun scrappy team to watch but gosh dang can it get any more brutal than all of these close losses no it can't and especially that loss against texas on saturday look it kind of feels like the same song umpteenth verse because it feels like we've watched a game similar to that 15 or 20 times in the moser era to date but 
here's the thing. So many times with this Oklahoma basketball team, what we've seen is they hold a lead for a while, they carry it into the second half, and then all of a sudden the dam breaks and they can't stem the tide, right? Well, it wasn't quite that on Saturday against Texas Mm -hmm. because in that overtime period – if only for a moment in time, Oklahoma was very much the aggressor. It was Texas that jumped out to a quick seven-point lead in that overtime period. And here comes Oklahoma roaring back. They get a shot at the buzzer, descended into a second overtime, can't get it to fall. So, again, man, it's just agonizing to watch this team continually come so close in so many different ways and be unable to finish, especially on the road. Yeah, just brutal. Yeah, it hurt. You know, they're thin. We know that. And whenever they lost Tanner Groves there, whenever he fouled out, you kind of felt like that was going to be it. Um, Just don't have a whole lot of depth coming off the bench. And he does a whole lot for you. Now, he he put in eight points, grabbed some rebounds. Like, it wasn't just a a blow-you-away stat line. But the problem is, is like, whenever he's not out there, he does so many different things for you. Uh, it's it's hard for us to keep pace whenever we're not absolutely at full strength out there. Just brutal, brutal. Hate it for these guys. Um, I don't know what all the, <laughs> the I don't know what the formula is for them to make the tournament. But at this point, you know, you just you got to feel like it's not going to be in the cards this year, and which stinks because they've got some really nice wins. You know, that win over Kansas State was nice. Obviously, they beat Alabama, which was good. Um, you know, I, it's just uh, it's frustrating. Well, but- and I think, I think what everybody has kind of emphasized with this basketball team is in the situation that they are in and what's the most competitive and the deepest Big 12 conference that we've maybe ever seen. You put Oklahoma in any other conference right now, I – I don't know if I'd go as far as to say they're nationally ranked or anything, but I think the loss count is probably in single digits. There are so many of these games, and especially once these matchups just start compounding upon another and the physical grind of going toe-to-toe with Big 12 opponents night in and night out, week in and week out. There are so many of these games that Oklahoma, it feels like, has lost just by virtue of sheer attrition. Like they don't have enough left in the tank over the last five, six minutes of a basketball game to keep pace with the seven, eight other programs right now in the Big 12 that are trending towards tournament berths. Yeah. Nope. I agree with you. But, um, unfortunately, we are in the conference. And you got Tech at home, who's been playing a little bit better. Then you go on the road to Iowa State and Kansas State and then finish up with the top 25 TCU team at home. So even though the last four games you've played are against top 15 teams, the next four you play, will three of them will be against top 25 teams. So it just keeps coming. And, you know, they they can't slow down, feel sorry for themselves, because I even if you know the season is you're not going to make the tournament, you still better show up ready to roll because on any given night you can get embarrassed pretty quickly. So um, I'm still enjoying watching this team play. I like watching them, uh, you know, fight. They 
say this, they, they make the games entertaining one way or the other, but I don't know. We'll see what happens. You get right back out there. Uh, what The game is Tuesday, right? Tuesday against Texas Tech at the Lloyd yep. Noble Center. And, look, I think there is something to be said for the fight, especially – as it pertains to the public perception of Porter Moser, right? Because now at 13 and 14, pretty much anything outside of total perfection the rest of the way is going to leave you on the outside looking in as far as the NCAA tournament is concerned. The path isn't completely foreclosed, but the Sooners literally have no margin for error left. So the overwhelmingly safe bet is that they're not a tournament team. And with as much flack as Moser has taken for the way that his team has kind of faltered at times this season – I think the perception of him heading into year three is a lot different if you at the very least show some fight over these last four games of the regular season and in the Big 12 tournament. And if you give if you give your team and you give your fan base something to hang their hat on, even if you don't make the field of 68. And last year I would point to that Baylor win in the Big 12 tournament. Yeah. Right? It wasn't enough to get Oklahoma in the tournament. but we it, thought was, it was. Yeah, it was enough to make everybody go, okay, well – Maybe we all wrote off Porter Moser a little bit too soon when this team started uh, to nosedive in January and February. Now, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to, to get the pulse of the fan base, so hit us on the text line, 651-3439, because I, I don't know. Where they sit right now, they are, what, they're 13 and 14. They've got a losing record. They're 3-11 and 11 in conference, okay, if, if you just view it through that, it's a disaster year. Um, coming off of, of not making the tournament last year. And I I got to imagine there's some people uneasy out there, but I don't I, – I still I still feel good about Porter Moser and the direction. Now, something's got to shake. Now, I'll tell you that. Like, they've got to be able to – to get a little bit more competitive in the transfer portal. I think they've got a couple of recruits coming in, but they've got to continue to to get that roster in some better shape. We get I, – I, I like the guys that we got. Don't get me wrong. But we need some athleticism. We need some size, and we need some athleticism. And I know we're leaving the Big 12, but, gosh, to be competitive at – you know, big-time college basketball now, you've got to have some guys in the front court that are really athletic and versatile. And we just we haven't had that in a while. No, and I think my big thing with this team, uh, really ever since about midseason has been, it's, it's strikingly evident that the personnel has not caught up to the philosophy. And I think when you look at what Moser brings to the table philosophically as a coach, there is plenty of empirical data to suggest that it works, right? You don't yeah. get to the cusp of a national championship at a school like Loyola Chicago if you don't know what you're doing philosophically. But this team, in terms of the personnel right now, Teddy, they're just not engineered to play Porter Moser's yeah. style of basketball, especially in the Big 12. And so there needs to be some additional roster turnover before you can have this team as competitive as you want them, especially in a league like this. Yeah, that last Final Four run, gosh, what was the big guy's name? Cameron a, Crutwig. Yeah, he was a senior. He'd been. He played a ton of basketball. Um, big guy. I guess he he played center, right? I mean, that's that's kind of how they uh-huh. they structured that. It felt like, and uh, he he hasn't had a big guy like that. And 
Uh, even even him, I mean, that's that's really a little bit different style of, of kind of what we see week in, week out here uh, in the Big 12. They're usually long and freaky athletic. Um, but, you know, you got Tanner Groves, who's like we saw the same thing with Brady Manick under Coach Kruger being forced to, to play out of position because we just didn't have the size to, to compete down low with some teams and – that's kind of the same thing that's happened with Tanner Groves. So, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Hopefully they can. I think they've got some NIL stuff in the works to where they're going to get that up and running and hopefully have some ammunition to be able to go out and, you know, compete in the portal and recruiting a little bit better. But we'll see how that goes. Um, I don't know. It's going to be going to continue to be frustrating, I think, until they can uh, kind of get over the hump in that regard. So we'll see. And I know it's tough because at Oklahoma, it's almost like <laughs> you make a big NIL deal for basketball, the fan base is like, well, couldn't we have used that for football, right? <laughs> couldn't we have used that for a couple of defensive linemen? I feel like that would kind of be the pushback there, but gosh, you got to spread the wealth a little bit, don't you? You do. And right now, it's it feels weird and it kind of feels wrong that we're having to have this conversation about college basketball and, well, you know, they're going to need to make advancements in terms of NIL to be able to compete. But I also think when you look at what happens in the tournament every single year, and there's no better example than freaking St. Peter's a year ago, right? If you play solid, fundamentally sound, efficient basketball, you're going to win games. It doesn't matter how physically outmatched Mm -hmm. you may be. And Oklahoma is physically outmatched right now in the Big 12, they don't necessarily have to have 13 outstanding athletes on that roster in order to win games. They just got to have the 13 right athletes, and that's what I keep coming back to. I don't know if Oklahoma has 13 yeah. of the right athletes right now. They got some good ones, but I don't know if they got the right ones. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, they're they're left with only a couple of avenues offensively, um, which, you know, creates some trouble for them, but – I don't know. I'm still entertained by it. It's been fun. Obviously, I wish that they would would win some of these tight ones. You just look at, you know, the Texas overtime loss. Um, Kansas got away from them, but the Baylor game was was fairly tight on the road. Um, Baylor ended up winning by ten, but that was a close basketball game. They've had some close ones in there that, uh, you know, just leave you a little frustrated. All right, let's hit an opening timeout. Hit the text line, 651-3439. Ton of stuff to get into today. Softball took a loss over the weekend. Um, touched on it briefly. XFL's first first weekend in, in this season went really well. Good to see Coach Stoops getting the win there. Um, we got some NCAA um, clock proposals to try and shorten the games, it sounds like. And uh, there's a couple of different avenues they can go down there. We'll get into that today as well some all-star weekend stuff perhaps and need to touch on a little bit of crouton see what's going on out there i need to get acclimated i need to be brought up to speed with this 24 class not just oklahoma wise but who some of the 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 ballers across the country are all right quick timeout. we'll be back stay with us The Rush rolls on here on the Ref Sports Radio Network. Parker Thune here in the Buffalo Wild Wings studios. 
Two-star Teddy out there at Newcastle Casino. And we'll get to recruiting here in a bit. But first, to the Air Comfort Solutions text line. Folks are chiming in on Porter Moser, as Teddy goaded them to do before the last break. One listener said, it seems like we've gotten this sentiment a lot regarding Porter on the text line, Teddy. You pay for a 500 coach, you're going to get 500 results. Thoughts? Yeah. You know, I was, um, whenever they first made the hire, whenever I, back actually before the hire was made, whenever the search was underway, Porter Moser's name came up and, you know, I, I looked at it, I you know, I did my research, which is nothing other than looking at his coaching history. And, you know, I kind of saw I kind of saw mediocrity with a couple of really nice tournament runs. So I guess I understand where the texter's coming from. But after I kind of, you know, saw how he was was going to go about things a couple of different things early on like i thought i thought recruiting was going to go really well better than it has but you know the circumstances not to make excuses but the circumstances have been incredibly difficult on porter moser whenever he first got here he basically not basically had to rebuild an entire roster like during the whole covid situation it, it just it hasn't been normal yet for him. But that's not to say that, like, I don't understand where the texture's coming from. I do. Well, and here's my thing with that whole line of thinking as you look at Porter's background. Yeah, did he have a couple of rocky tenures at places like Arkansas Little Rock and Illinois State? Sure. But when you look at what he did at Loyola Chicago, take note – of when that program really started to put itself on the rise. And it was after Porter had four or five years to establish his culture, recruit around his vision, and make sure that the program was structured according to the way that he wanted it to be structured. And look, in today's era in college athletics, everybody wants microwave results, right? Everybody wants what Jerome Tang just did at Kansas State. Everybody Mm -hmm. wants a coach to come in in year one, and take the world by storm. And that's not always realistic. It's certainly not realistic at a place like Oklahoma where you have a basketball program that is far less prestigious historically than the football program. When we talk about Oklahoma basketball, we're not having the same conversation that we're having about Oklahoma football. So my thought has always been, unless you have compelling reasons not to believe in what Porter Moser is building, you're going to have to give him some time to establish his vision at a place like OU, because especially when you have disadvantages that are baked into the pie, i.e. the Lloyd Noble Center, let's just call a spade a spade, Teddy. In terms of facilities, the Lloyd Noble Center is far from elite when you're talking about Power 5 basketball programs across the country. So when you have inherent disadvantages at a job like Oklahoma, you're going to have to give a guy time to build a recruiting pitch that can overcome concerns that recruits will have about those disadvantages. And that can take some time. And it can take some time to overhaul a roster. I'm not 
terribly worried about Porter Moser yet. Yes, I have my concerns, as you do with any coach early in the process when you're not seeing a whole lot of tangible on-field or on-court success. But I, I don't think Porter Moser is a 500 coach. I, I don't think that's fair to him. I, I don't know offhand what his career yeah. record is, but, again, I go back. What to- if it's 500? If it's 500, do we have to say that he is a 500 coach? Well, in, in, by definition, yes, he's a 500 <laughs> coach. If you're talking sheer semantics, then yes. But I think Porter Moser is a lot better of a coach than whatever his career record would indicate because, again, that's a guy that uh, he became a head coach very early on in his coaching career. And he had a couple of rocky stops along the way before he got to Loyola Chicago and built a beast there. 548. So he's better than a 500 uh, coach. So there you go. He's a 548 coach. Now let me ask you this. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so you hit on something that I thought was both correct but interesting. You're right. At Loyola Chicago, they got hot after he got the conveyor belt rolling, right? Correct. Several recruiting classes through there. You got some veteran players. They've played together for multiple years, and you, your your vision for the program starts to come alive, right? And that's kind of, you know, we're, we're looking at a similar thing going on in football right now. But let me ask you, uh, it's one thing – to do that at Loyola Chicago where, I mean, I know guys are going to transfer everywhere, but I think you're a lot more likely at a place like that to have guys that are four- or five-year guys that stay there. Is it even possible to do that, to, to you know, wait to develop your culture and to have these guys come through and, and spend multiple years in your program in – in the Big 12 and then forward to the SEC? Or is it going to constantly be musical chairs where you're you're replacing a large percentage of your roster year in and year out and you don't have very many guys that are there for four years, so you never really have the culture set? Well, I think that's the million-dollar question, and I, I don't know if we have a definitive answer to that question yet in the era of NIL. I really do think, and this is something that not a whole lot of folks have talked about yet, I think the fact that Porter Moser came out and emphatically denied any interest in the Notre Dame job is going to have a positive aftershock when it comes to recruiting. Because, again, you think about Moser at a place like Loyola Chicago, right? What's the concern going to be for every single recruit that he sits down with? It's, okay, if you have a couple of really successful seasons here at Loyola Chicago, are you going to stick around? Because... In, the, in recent memory, you think about a guy like Todd Golden, who has one good year at San Francisco, and all of a sudden he's the head coach at Florida. Right. Andy Enfield has one really good year at Florida Gulf Coast, and he's the head coach at USC. So when you have a job that is regarded as a stepping stone job, and that's not what I'm insinuating about OU by any stretch, but when you have a job that you don't have any ostensible ties that bind you, and there is the worry about whether you would jump at the chance to take a job that's maybe a bit closer to home, maybe mm-hmm. offers you a little bit more in terms of salary, in terms of facilities, in terms of incentives. That's something that every recruit is going to be cognizant of, right? But the fact that Porter came out and there had been plenty of rumblings linking him to that Notre Dame job, the fact that he came out and said, no, 
I'm not going back home to the Midwest. I'm not going to Notre Dame. I'm home at Oklahoma. That's something that he's going to be able to put in front of recruits and say, listen, I'm in it for the long haul here. And it's the same thing he could put in front of his guys at Loyola Chicago and why they continue to go upon a gradual upward trajectory is because it became clear at a certain point that Moser wasn't about to bolt. When he took Loyola to the Final Four, he didn't go anywhere. It was three more seasons before he bounced for the Oklahoma job. And so right. the stability that he can sell now, that he has come out and disavowed any notion that he was or is interested in the Notre Dame job, I think is going to yield positive benefits. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, think, there's a, I think there's a lot to it. Got to make something happen. Hopefully some NIL stuff is going to help them out. But, you know, just to, to shoot down those rumors – and uh, and have some stability is big. It would also go a long way if we could ever get anything going with the arena. But uh-huh. I don't I don't know what's going to happen there. You want a uh, a Doug in Norman text? Sure. <laughs> Teddy, you asked for some OU fan input. As a season ticket basketball holder, I am disappointed frequently, but I still believe OU can be competitive enough to be an NCAA tournament team in the long run. But Coach Moser has to recruit better. Our two recruits for next year are 6'7 and 6'5 wings. Probably good players. We already have wing-type players. We need bigs that are more athletic than what we have. Mm -hmm. Bama Seal and Uwe are athletic enough, but so undisciplined that every basket they make is offset by a turnover or defensive lapse. Kind of like the play we see from Stutzman in football. Whoa, Danny Stutzman catching a stray. We need (laughs) recruiting help big time. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, that's that's one of the things uh, I mentioned earlier. The front court is looks like where we're ultimately. That's where we're really outmatched. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I don't know what the uh, what the outlook is for recruits in that area or portal guys in that area. We'll just have to, I guess, wait and see what happens. All right, quick timeout. More from the rush coming up. We got four hours today. An hour number one. Rolls on next. Rush is back. Hour number one, an hour early. Tyler's out, hanging out with Parker Thune. This is usually locked in, man, and I got to get up to speed. Let's run down some of the 24, a um, couple of the big names that Oklahoma's after, and just what does this crop look like compared to years past? Um, is there some really good talent out there, like on the on the high end, like maybe your top twenty five type of guys? How's it kind of compared to what we've seen recently? Pretty much par for the course, or there's some like once in a decade type players in this one. Well, there's a ton of talent on the top end, especially when you look at the defensive trenches. And look, the outlook for every team is great in February, right? Because Every school is convinced that this is the year they're going to land a top 10, top 5 class. Fortunately, in Oklahoma's case, they're just coming off a year and a recruiting cycle in which they landed the number 4 class in the country. Brent Venables and staff have proven that they don't even need to win all that many games in order to recruit an elite class. Coming off a 6-7 and year, they signed the number 4 class in the country. Seven top 100 players nationally, which is the most for Oklahoma in the modern recruiting era. And they're going to have an opportunity, Teddy, to eclipse that number in the class of 2024. And I think the big point of focus 
uh, in when it comes to most fans that follow recruiting on a day-to-day diehard basis. I think the big point of focus in this 2024 class is what's Oklahoma going to be able to do with those elite top-end four- and five-star defensive linemen with whom they are trending so well. And there are really four names to keep in mind there. Will Nwineri, the five-star edge rusher out of Lee's Summit, Missouri, former high school teammate of Caden Green, freshman offensive lineman at Oklahoma and a former five-star – or former four-star kid, excuse me, in the class of 2023. So Nwineri is the number 17 player in the 24-7 sports mm. composite right now. Six foot five, 260 pounds. Built a lot like Keon Keeley, plays a lot like Keon Keeley, the five-star edge rusher last cycle who ended up signing with Alabama. Uh, you got Nigel Smith, Zadavian Sims, and David Stone, all of whom possess the capacity to be inside, outside guys. Sims from Durant, Oklahoma. Stone, of course, from Dell City, Oklahoma, now at IMG Academy. And then Nigel Smith from the North Texas area, the North West, or Northeast, excuse me, Northeast side of DFW in Melissa, Texas. So those are four guys that Oklahoma stands a very legitimate chance of landing. And if that's the case, I think that will put an end to the narrative that has followed Todd Bates around really ever since Texas A&M beat out Oklahoma for DJ Hicks at the end of September. Yeah, well, uh, that seems um, – is there really a narrative that he's not a good recruiter? Uh, among serious people, No. Among the unserious folk that populate the Air Comfort Solutions text line some days, uh, there certainly is. And, you know, there's that. I, I don't know if you've interacted with them at all or seen some of their work on the Twitterverse. But there's this Twitter contingent of probably 40 to 50 OU quote unquote fans that just have made it their life's mission to spread anti-Todd Bates sentiment on social media. That's interesting. I wonder where that comes from. Um, huh. And these are real people? These, I, I assume, no, no, okay, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Periodically, these people throw me in this giant Twitter group message that they have where they're commiserating, A, about Todd Bates' perceived ineptitude as a recruiter and all of their gen ed finals. So they're a bunch of 19, 20-year-old college students that have nothing better to do with their free time than complain on Twitter. Hmm. So, I, okay. I, look, I, again, among serious people, there is no stigma as far as Todd Bates as a recruiter. And right. the people that are complaining about what he did in year one and who he didn't get versus who he did get are probably a lot of the same people that were complaining about what DeMarco Murray didn't get in year one when he was on Oklahoma staff. Obviously, that was the year OU heavily pursued Kamar Wheaton. He went to Alabama. OU didn't sign a running back that cycle. Well, since right. then, DeMarco Murray signed four blue-chip running backs over the two ensuing cycles, and nobody is questioning that guy's acumen as a recruiter these days. Yeah. Well, I I, I think it's uh, I think it's just a matter of time, and I think a lot of people well, – I think most people recognize that. So um, who's the best player overall in this class? Ooh, that's a good question, man. Um, Outside of quarterback. Yeah, I was about to say, I think the easy answer is always, you know, when you're talking about – Who's the best quarterback, Yeah, it's, right? it's, it's always typically the best quarterback, and I think Dylan Ryle is probably the guy 
that has the most buzz in that regard. And I've seen him in person several times. That kid's special. He's advanced beyond his years, both physically and cognitively when it comes to playing the quarterback position. But, man, I really do think that outside of the quarterback position, the guy that has the highest ceiling in this class would be Will Nguyenary. And it's convenient that Oklahoma has an in there, uh, not only via his teammate, Caden Green, who's now at Oklahoma, but his head coach up at least Summit North is your former teammate, Jamar Mosey, who was a member yeah. of that 2000 National Championship team. So Oklahoma's primarily doing battle with Missouri, Tennessee, and Oregon there. Uh, but, again, as I mentioned, that's just a kid that it, you watch him move. Guys shouldn't be able to move the way that he does at six foot five, 260 pounds. He's got all the speed and fluidity of edge rushers that are 40 pounds lighter than him, but he's got bulk to be a run stuffer as well. So there's a lot that you can do with a guy like that. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, All right. Well, good stuff. Yeah, I'm – I got no problem with Bates. Hopefully they just keep the the momentum going. They've got some good things to recruit to. Uh, They've got momentum from that last class, obviously. They've got some facility stuff that's going to be happening – I think the – and I don't know if you've seen anything on the recruiting trail, like, immediate, but i got to imagine the announcement that it's it's definitely happening that they're going to the SEC next year has to be a positive, right? I think it is. But then again, I think you've already seen – It's already the, cooked in. Yeah, you've already seen the majority of the recruiting boom that was going to come with the announcement of that move just because – a lot of these 2024 kids, the only year that they would have played in the Big 12 would have been their freshman year had the move been postponed until 2025. So this is something that all mm-hmm. these guys were still kind of counting on by the time they were major contributors at Oklahoma. OU was going to be playing SEC ball. So I, I know much was made on social media about the potential fallout that that could have as far as recruiting when it was announced that Oklahoma and Texas were going to move prior to the 2024 season. But I don't know if it'll have that much tangible impact. I think a lot of that impact came much, much earlier. I'm talking a year, a year and a half ago. Yep. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm excited about it. So we don't have a commitment yet, right? No, which is interesting because not there, there aren't a whole lot of Blue Blood programs right now, actually probably none, that are sitting here in February without a pledge. But again – this is just the Venables recruiting philosophy at work, right? They, they bring guys in for visits. They tell them, make sure you see whatever you want to see. We believe that at the end of it all, you're going to loop back around and realize that there's no better place for you than Oklahoma. That's a bet we're willing to make. So take all your visits, come back around and commit when you're ready to shut things down for good. So yeah. I, I don't think we're too far away from the dam breaking. I think that's going to happen in the month of March once the dead period lifts. Which you've – You've got uh, the familiar faces. Georgia's already ranked number one with three five-star commitments and six four-star commitments. Wow. Um, Notre Dame's at two. They got eight. LSU's got eight. Florida State's got nine with a five-star. Alabama's back at the number nine class right now with two five-star and two four-star commits. So it's still pretty thin, but gosh, no one really has like Ohio State has just three commits right now. Texas has just three commits, so it's not like you're worried that anyone's just absolutely running away and has all of the top talent already. So I think you're right. 
We didn't have, I mean, we had some early stuff that was kind of already cooked in that basically had already committed to uh-huh. the previous uh, staff, right? And then it didn't take, it was, I guess it wasn't until June or July whenever things actually started to, to really happen. It was late June. I think on June 25th, Oklahoma had the number 38 class in the nation. So, yeah. again, this is just the way that Venables and this staff do business. The boom is going to come later chronologically than many of their peer programs, but it is going to come. And I know for a fact, Teddy, that there are a lot of folks down there in the DFW area, a lot of high school juniors, a lot of members of that 2024 class that are waiting for the big announcement from Michael Hawkins to find out whether he's going to go to Oklahoma or whether he's going to go to TCU. And if that goes in OU's favor, which I expect at this point, there's going to be an immediate Pied Piper effect. I don't know how sizable – but it's going to be significant. Let me ask you this. Is is it is that going to be as long as Levy's here, are they going to take a quarterback every year? And I, how, typically how does that affect, like when you take a guy like Jackson Arnold, how does that affect next year's recruiting class, well, if at all? That's a great question, and I don't know if we really know yet just because – I don't know that Oklahoma would be in such good standing with a quarterback of Michael Hawkins' caliber unless he were in a situation where his dad played at OU, he's a legacy, right. grew up a fan, right? So this is this is kind of an extenuating circumstance in a lot of ways. I don't know whether we will be able to have a great gauge on that in the long term just because I think by the time we start to establish enough data to be able to draw a conclusion, that's probably going to be about the time that Levy's looking to make the jump to being a Power 5 head coach. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. It's interesting, too, that the uh, I guess the two leading candidates happen to be uh, brother-in-law. That's right. It's interesting. That's right. Battle, battle within the family for Michael Hawkins between Jeff Levy and Kendall Bryles. All right, let's hit a quick timeout. We'll come back and wrap up our number one. Keep hitting the text line, 651-3439. We'll be back. Russia's back. Hour number one, Teddy Lehman here, Parker Thune, back in studio, hanging out at Newcastle Casino today, I-44 exit 107, all kinds of great promotions going on. Come and see us. I'm at the front row sports bar. Always uh, good stuff here. Um yeah, we hit the OU hoops, tough loss to Texas, overtime loss, had a chance to extend it there with the second overtime, couldn't get it done, going to be difficult right back out on the uh, on the floor, sorry, not on the road, Texas Tech's coming to town, uh, a thrilling 9-verse-10 in, uh, in the Big 12 matchup, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, do you catch any – are you uh NBA fan? Do you watch any of the All-Star stuff over the weekend? I tell you, Teddy, I think at this point you could not pay me to watch any of the NBA All-Star festivities. I'm not much of an NBA guy as it is. I used to really enjoy All-Star weekend, but at a certain point, man, it just became all too gimmicky for me. It's it's nuts, yeah. I'm, I like the dunk contest. I like some of the contests, like the three-point shooting contest, stuff like that, uh, but – the All-Star game has just become unwatchable. And I don't know who's to blame, and I don't know if there's anyone to blame, and I don't know if I care enough to blame anyone. But, like, when you got guys just kind of standing there almost like with their arms folded watching other guys go one-on-one, just kind of ridiculous. Um, and you heard a lot of that, maybe the loudest I've heard it 
uh, from people in the game, coaching the game, covering the game. Uh, not what they want, but I don't know that there's an answer. Everyone's like, well, pay them more. But can you throw any more money at guys that make forty? $45 million a year that's going to get them interested in anything, <laughs> you know? I mean, that's kind of a roadblock to, to go in that route. I don't know. Like $500,000, guys just turn their nose up at it. Yeah, it's it kind of feels like at this point with where we've gotten to in American sports, not just the NBA but sports, it's become really difficult to make these athletes care about an all-star exhibition. Right. They're there for the festivities. They're there for the photos. They're there for the camaraderie. They're there for the recognition. But when it comes to any all-star game these days in professional sports, those guys aren't showing up to give 110% effort. Yeah. And I don't know that they ever will. It doesn't, doesn't mean as much for whatever reason. And I'm not saying it should mean more, but it doesn't mean as much as it, it, it used to in years past for whatever reason. All right. Quick timeout. More from the Rush coming up. Hour number two is next here from Newcastle. Rush is back. Hour number two, Teddy Lehman here. Parker Thune back in studio, hanging out at Newcastle Casino. I-44 exit 107. I'm here uh, outside the Front Row Sports Bar. Always got happy hour going on, three to six every single day. Uh, good drink specials going on. Come see us here at Newcastle. Oh, man, I saw something interesting. It kind of ties in a little bit to, to some of the recruiting stuff that we were talking about. I mentioned Georgia already atop the the 2024 class rankings with three five-star commits, six four-stars, and one three-star, ten commits already. I'm sure you saw this article. There was a uh, an article put out comparing the top – recruiting spenders from the 2023 class okay and it's pretty shocking georgia's number one but we'll start at the back michigan it's they gave us the top six michigan 2.24 million spent on football recruiting okay and then you've you've got alabama at 2.32 texas at 2.4 Tennessee and Texas A&M both tied at at second and third at just under $3 million, $2.98 million. And then Georgia, number one, $4.5 million. So they doubled up what Michigan, who's in the top six, spent on recruiting and a full million and a half dollars more than A&M and Tennessee, who are tied for, for number two. Which, I mean, that that should tell you, Teddy, that if you want to play on Georgia's level, if you want to be on the same level as the back-to-back national champions, guess what? Everybody else is going to have to start spending more on recruiting. And to be honest, I, I, I don't know if I'm the only one that feels this way, but those numbers almost seem low to me. Yeah. Like, I, I would have thought that there would be more than one program nationally spending more than $4 million a year on recruiting because there are a ton of expenses that go into a recruiting budget from yeah. unofficial visits, official visits, hotels, transportation for coaches doing in-person visits, road costs. Man, I, I'm almost shocked 
that nobody is spending on Georgia's level just because $4 million seems like a pretty low threshold when you're talking about the lifeblood of your football program. I agree. Now, um, I don't know. I don't know how the accounting is done on this and, and how like forthcoming everyone is on exactly what they spend, you know, but as a guideline and I guess as they as they put it down and report it uh, publicly, I guess, the breakdown of the the athletic budget, this is kind of what you get. Now, for, like, coaches travel and stuff like that, like a lot of that private jet, like that stuff's donated. So I don't think that that shows up in your recruiting budget. But obviously that's a huge expense. So the stuff that is, is counted, though, Georgia is – head and shoulders above the rest, and you're right. Like, you just, you're not going to be able to close the gap if you're not spending on the same level. And I think maybe there's, like, like with Venables, there's got to be a bit of a, um, like, you kind of gear up for it instead of, like to see exactly where you need to, what you need to do, where you need to improve. Like you kind of have to get a grasp of the lay of the land before you just start throwing money at something. So I expect that to, they start to chisel away at that and, and, and make up some ground on, on the top recruiting spenders out there because uh, you can't just go out there and say, well, it's Oklahoma, we'll get the top guys. Nope, you got to spend with the Georgias, the Bamas, the Tennessees. The A and M's. So, I it's gonna come. I'm guessing. I just don't know when we close that gap. Well, and what's the old line about the SEC, right? It just means more. And so, mm-hmm. whatever Oklahoma's spending right now in terms of recruiting, certainly whatever Texas is spending right now in terms of recruiting, and I can't remember what the exact number was, but it came out in the public eye. I think last June after Arch Manning committed, just how much Texas had spent on his official visit ex- experience down in Austin. Whatever those two programs are spending right now for recruiting, you'd have to figure that there's going to be an uptick in their allotted budget once they make the transition to the SEC because the one thing you can't risk, Teddy, is you can't risk falling behind. you got to keep up with the Joneses, especially when you're playing in such a deep and competitive league as the SEC when I think it's becoming increasingly apparent that – there is no weak link in that conference, save obviously for Vanderbilt, which is not operating on the same playing field as the other 15 SEC programs. But if Shane Beamer has taught us anything at South Carolina over the last couple of years, it's that you get any guy in the right situation and you let him assemble the right staff at an SEC program, he's going to be able to have some success. Yeah. Nope, I, I think so. I, I, I agree with everything you say there just interesting isn't it man i um you know we we got by with so little for so long covered up a bunch of the the inefficiencies and inadequacies that we've had with some outstanding play and a couple of you know big name guys that could make up you know for some for some errors, I think we we also benefited from a, a a Big 12 that was grossly down. Texas, 
mired in five and seven type of seasons. Like we were able to just get by winning the Big 12, making the college football playoff, and it felt like we were just right there a, a, a guy or two away, but we were actually a whole roster away. And it's it's left us realizing how far kind of behind the pack we are whenever it comes to that that real top tier. And it's not like we are light years away, but like our facilities aren't there. Our or just our general staff budget wasn't there. Our recruiting budget isn't there as as this story is is reporting that the, uh, that they are i mean there's a lot of pieces out there that were just not on the same level as the top teams and you just can't you can't get by like that no right? and i think every program that wants to be nationally competitive wants to be in the college football playoff discussion year in and year out can take a cue from georgia because Five years ago, Teddy, what program was the very clear number one in college football? Bama. It was Bama. And I think you can make an argument that all things considered, Bama is still that program. But my point is, in the last five years, Georgia has closed that gap drastically. And in the last two years, they have closed that gap drastically with their back-to-back national titles. And here's, here's my point with Georgia, the point I want to drive home, is that Georgia as a state is one of the most fertile recruiting grounds in the entire country. Sure. Realistically, to recruit at an elite level, the University of Georgia does not have to be pouring as much money as they are into recruiting because they could just stick to the kids in their backyard and have a top 10 class, top 5 class some years, pretty much every single cycle. But they're going above and beyond to make sure that they are doing everything in their power to level the playing field with Alabama – and that's the type of thing that everybody in college football is going to have to do if they're serious about swinging with the heavy hitters in the new era of college football that we're entering. Yeah, and it's not just it's not just in state. Like they are, they're right there next to Florida. You know, uh-huh. like the other honey hole. You know, they they're in a really really beneficial area. And that's the other thing. Like we are, we're not in a bad spot geographically um with with access to to texas easily we've we've made some some ground in kansas city uh you know we're not there's teams that are in a much more difficult spot geographically than we are but we're not in the best spot geographically we're not in as good a spot as georgia or bama or the florida schools or the texas schools I mean, we're, we're not even in the top ten with how the geographics line up. Mm-hmm. So we're fighting that as well. I mean, we're fighting a bunch of different battles, and you know that's that's part of where we are right now is we, we let it go for so long that it's, it's difficult to reel it back in, but I think we're on pace. So it's just those numbers were like, – I'm with you. Like, I thought the numbers were all of them were going to be bigger, but the fact that the percentage ahead that Georgia is over even the number two schools, like the number six school in all of college football, the, num- the top six program is 
doubled by the number one program. Like, that is – that's almost staggering, right? Yeah, well, and what's the old the old principle? you got to spend money to make money. And George is making money right now, both yeah. literally and figuratively as an athletic department. So, again, this is something that every program that wants to be on that level t- can take a cue from. And it's not entirely realistic for every program to be on George's level in terms of – recruiting talent right you can develop a roster and we saw this with tcu last year regardless of what your recruiting class looks like if you recruit the right athletes and you develop them you can be in the title hunt but i think the most sustainable approach to being a championship program these days starts with elite recruiting because there are some athletes every single year that are just superior to the rest and if you can get six seven eight of those guys in your recruiting class year in and year out it's gonna set you up well to not only assemble a championship team but assemble a championship program and that's there's a very crucial difference there teddy a championship team is not the same as a championship program right yeah championship program is whenever you're uh as soon as you win the championship and the way too early polls come out you're the favorite to win it again the next year right just because right Mm -hmm. no one really like i don't even know who you're losing yet who's going to the draft who's staying who's hitting the portal we don't even know that and we don't even care because how good you've uh recruited behind it we know that you've got the bodies so no i'm with you now let me ask you this Uh, even like in a perfect world i know we can close the gap but will Oklahoma ever be able to recruit to the level of Alabama and Georgia? Because I, we can, we can, I think we can get there winning games. I think we can get there NIL. I think we can get there facilities-wise. But we can't get there geographically. Is that enough to keep us to where we're never going to be able to be on the same playing field? I, I will say or level, this. I guess. I will say this. I think it is possible. I think what needs to happen is Oklahoma needs to break into those strongholds in Texas that they haven't cracked yet. And I think about DeSoto, which is a very notorious Texas feeder program. Mm -hmm. I think of South Oak Cliff and, of course, Emmett Jones, your new receivers coach at Oklahoma, the former head coach at South Oak Cliff. Oklahoma has not had really any success recruiting South Oak Cliff in recent years. They haven't had a ton of success recruiting Duncanville. So if you can get two or three of the top players that come through those schools mm-hmm. every year and add those guys to your classes, yeah, I do actually think Oklahoma can position themselves to be on Alabama and Georgia's level. And the Sooners do recruit in the state of Texas very well, but even so, it's such a big state and there is so much talent that that state produces year in and year out that, like I said, some of those consistent high school powerhouses in the Lone Star State have been completely untapped to date as far as Oklahoma is concerned. So if you can break down those barriers, yeah, I think you can get there. Yeah. Here's what's crazy. We we have the number four class. We had a top five class in the country for 23. But... Even with the top four class, we lost 
ground massively to Alabama and Georgia. Massively. We have the number four class in the country. We had three five-stars and 14 four-stars. Alabama had nine five-stars and 18 four-stars. So even when we have a top four class, we lost ground massively whenever it comes to bolstering your roster with the 2023 recruiting class. Like that's, <laughs> that's what you're up against. That's what's crazy, man, is even though you're top five, the difference between being three and four as opposed to one and two with Alabama and Georgia is a massive difference. Texas was uh, was the third recruiting class, uh-huh. and they didn't sign half as many five-stars as Alabama did. Mm-hmm. And Crazy. Again, that just goes to show you how big the gap is right now between yeah. Alabama and Georgia, and it's not a gap that's going to be closed overnight. It's going to have to be – a lot of work put in over several classes in a row to gradually close that talent gap. And not only are you going to have to recruit, you're going to have to develop. And that's the key difference, I think, between where Oklahoma has positioned themselves and where Texas has positioned themselves. Because Oklahoma has a reputation as a program that develops. Texas does not necessarily have the same reputation, at least not recently. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing with Alabama, and this is you've got to create – momentum around the entire athletic department not just football and i I, helps everything they're building a a new a massive new clubhouse at their golf facility they're building a new basketball arena imagine that the facilities upgrades that they've done with football are are top notch like they're spreading it around to all of the other programs that's why I get so daggum frustrated with this basketball arena deal. All right, we should have people like falling over each other in line to say yes to this deal instead of finding every reason possible to say no to it. Frustrating. I hear you, man. And, yeah, again, I think that's the market delineation right now between – the few athletic programs in the country that are outpacing the rest, not just in a football sense, but in an overall sense, and the ones that are kind of in that second tier. Yep. All right, let's hit a timeout. Hit us on the text line, 651-3439. We'll get to some of those next. See what you guys got to say on a Monday after a good weekend. We'll be back. Stay with us. Rush is back. Teddy Lehman here, Parker Thune, hanging out at Newcastle Casino today out front of the uh, front row sports bar come and see us happy hour going on great drink specials going on every single day here all right let's hit the air comfort solutions text line 651-3439 what do we got coming in today parker one listener says we just not answering questions off the text line today or do we need to be a tool like doug to get red okay people are getting impatient (laughs) so we better hit some of these uh brent from from jinx says oh you is a much better program than georgia it takes winning, having good defense, and being in the SEC. Absolutely, yes, OU can have the one, two, three class every season. Before the SEC, no. So Brent actually thinks OU in the SEC can be more of a behemoth than Georgia in the SEC. Well, I think all of those things are true. I, I, I think you can. 
but it it's it doesn't just happen because you're Oklahoma. You know, I I think um, we we it went it went too long, right? The 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 structure, the way we were handling things went a little bit too long before now we're trying to mad scramble to get caught up and I think we will. But yeah, I I don't think there's there's any doubt about that. Like historically the programs aren't even close. So if Georgia can do it, then yes, Oklahoma can do it, but you're gonna have to start beating Georgia in the, in order to do it, right? Like that's that's the hard thing. It's not just going to, to show up out of nowhere. You're gonna have to actually beat them on the field and that's doable, but not easy. One listener says, PT's thoughts on David Stone. Now, we talked about Stone. We talked about some of the big-time defensive linemen in the 2024 class last hour here on The Rush. But, uh, look, the Stone recruitment is one that I'm doing my best to stay away from for at least a couple months because it's going to be a whole lot of hype and not a lot of substance until official visit season rolls around at the absolute earliest That looks like an OU-Michigan State battle right now. I don't think that's any secret. If you follow Stone on social media, he posts a lot about Oklahoma. He posts a lot about Michigan State. Where I kind of draw the line and why I lean towards Oklahoma and always have is because the kids actually, and this has been reported, so I can say this, the kids tried to commit to Oklahoma on multiple occasions uh, just for one reason or another. Uh, His commitment has been kicked down the line they've kicked the can down the road in essence but he's very comfortable at Oklahoma very comfortable with Todd Bates he's from Dell City his sister goes to OU the whole family likes Oklahoma now the question with every single five star is okay regardless of what he likes regardless of what his family likes how much is money going to come into play because DJ Hicks liked Oklahoma his whole family liked Oklahoma in the end it didn't matter. He went to Texas A&M. So I, mm-hmm. I don't think you can say with 100% certainty really anything regarding the recruitment of Stone or any other five-star just because five-stars are just such a different breed, Teddy, when it comes to the way they operate, the market for their services. It's almost as if, and to be honest, there's not a whole lot of distinction in terms of on-field product and ability between the high four stars and the five stars. But yet it's almost as if the second a guy gets that fifth star, it just becomes a complete white elephant of a recruitment, and it's drama out the wazoo. And so I'm hoping that's not the case with David Stone. I think a lot of folks uh, are hoping that that's not the case with David Stone. But as far as his recruitment is concerned, I still think Oklahoma is best positioned here. And I think the pull, uh, being the hometown team, being the team he grew up pulling for, uh, it's going to be too strong to overcome for David Stone. So I feel good about that. I don't feel quite as good about him as I do about Nigel Smith right now. I think that's probably the highest percentage guy among the four for Oklahoma. Nigel Smith has been a heavy OU lean for quite some time. So that's the guy I'm most confident in, but I still feel pretty good about OU with David Stone. Oh Well, let me ask you this. How good is Stone? Uh, I, I see he's, he's the fourth-ranked player overall. Uh-huh. Um, but like, even that, like, what have you seen from him in comparison to, um, like the Hicks kid from yeah. from a year ago, or some of the other like 
over the last five years some of the top defensive linemen? He's elite. He is a truly elite prospect, and he's only 16 years old. So as physically advanced as he is, you just don't see many kids with those genetics. He's not Hicks, but he's close. He's close. And right now the Mm -hmm. only defensive lineman that outranks him in the 24-7 sports rankings is Will Nguyenary. I mentioned him earlier in the show. Caden Green's former teammate, plays for Jamar Mosey up at least Summit North. He's the number three overall player and number one defensive lineman in the 24-7 sports rankings for the class of 2024. So it's widely regarded as a two-horse race between Nguyenary and Stone for the title of number one defensive lineman in this cycle. I think both of them are really, really good. They're different players. Stone's going to be an interior guy. Nguyenary, to me, even with as big as he is, he's going to end up playing the edge. He's going to play defensive end. So they're very different. They each have their strengths. They each have their weaknesses. They both have areas that they need to improve their game as a senior. But in terms of overall product at the defensive line position, those two right now, to me, look head and shoulders above the rest in the class. Yep. Let's hit one more text message before we hit a timeout. Are you surprised that Peyton Bowen is getting a look at Cheetah and not someone like Key Lawrence? What do you think, Teddy? No, not surprised. Um, I think Key Lawrence is – I think he's safety material. I think he's going to be back at safety. Um, I think that – McCullough is a different player than Pearson, who's a different player than Bowen, Mm -hmm. who's a different player than Harrington. And I think that that's kind of what you want with that position. You know, ultimately, you want Deshaun McCullough to take that position and absolutely thrive because you can do so many things there. It can be an absolute weapon for your defense and – we haven't had uh, a player at that spot that is a weapon. It's lately it's been we're just kind of hanging onto our butts there, right? Um, you know he's kind of built for it. We'll see if he can grasp it and and thrive there. But I also think that we want him rushing the passer, and if he's going to rush the passer, I don't I don't have a problem with lining him up at edge on certain situations and. You know, putting a, a guy like Pearson that's a six-year player that's played a ton of football, uh, good tackler, physical kid, incredibly smart, I I like that changeup. I also like putting a, an athlete that's got the skill set of a guy like Peyton Bowen. Now, as a freshman, I think he's a long ways away from stepping on the field at that spot. And I know Venables has talked about his, his football IQ. Well, Everyone's got a good football IQ whenever the the playbook is one page long, okay? And it's going to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And freshmen always start out hot and absolutely hit a mental wall with all the information that's coming at him. But I do think that they'll be able to, to find some packages and opportunities for him to chip in. But, no, I it, it doesn't surprise me at all that uh, he's there and, Key Lawrence is he's going to have a fight on his hands just to get on the field at safety. All yep. of a sudden, you look at the safety position, and we're loaded. We are athletic. We've got good size there. Now, a lot of guys are young, and, and that's something that we're going to have to work through, but the safety position is deep right now. It is deep, and I think the one guy there that 
uh, it seems like folks don't talk about enough is Robert Spears Jennings, who yeah. saw the field a bit in year one, probably not as much as I anticipated or that he anticipated, but broke into the lineup just a little bit, uh, made some decent plays, uh, played some meaningful snaps, and I think heading into year two, just the physical ceiling that that kid has yeah. is off the charts. And so I'm interested to see how he fits in alongside Key Lawrence, alongside uh, Reggie Pearson, uh, alongside a kid like Peyton Bowen. You got Jamarian Burt as well in that room. Uh, Billy Bowman is a mainstay. He's pretty much locked in Vickers. as a starter. But and are they are they playing him at corner? They're Where's... gonna they're gonna play Vickers at corner. And let me tell you, Teddy, I. I think Vickers could be a guy that's working substantial snaps at the cornerback position in year one. There are not a whole lot of dudes, not really any dudes, I think, in that cornerback room that have his physical tools. And he's a legit 6'2", 185. He's physical as all get out. He'll get in your face at the line of scrimmage. And so there are guys that are more seasoned. There are probably guys that are more technically sound. But – I'd be surprised if Makari Vickers isn't doing what Latrell McCutcheon was doing in 2021 and seeing quite a bit of action at the cornerback position. Hopefully he makes some plays such that he's remembered for more than getting absolutely incinerated by Xavier Worthy. (laughs) But as a freshman, I do think Vickers is a guy that could see a lot of action. And as far as Bowen is concerned, at a certain point, I don't know how soon it's going to be. That's just a guy that's going to be too good to keep off the field. And yeah. Brent Venables said it. It was really the first thing that I noticed about Peyton Bowen once I got the chance to see him in person. Football is just easy for that kid, man. It is like he set Madden to rookie mode, and he's just gliding out there. Like everything is so much easier for him on the gridiron than everybody else around him. Now, granted, that's in high school. Now he's going to be playing Power 5 football. I get that it's a jump in the level of competition and a substantial one at that, but – Bowen will be a guy that plays as a freshman. Well, hopefully it stays easy for him uh, because if it's easy mentally, that's the only way you can fully unlock all your physical potential. And there's a lot of great athletes that go play college football, but very few of them are ever, ever there mentally to where they can totally unlock everything that they've got to offer. It's just a, it's a massive roadblock for, I would say, most guys. Uh, final thing before we hit a timeout. Makari Vickers playing corner, I think, is fan- corner is the easiest position defensively to get on the field as a freshman. It's it's all about, for the most part, physical tools. Can you do it? Mm-hmm. Can you do the job that they're asking? And it's also a great place to start your transition into college football if they've got you know, uh, hopes of you playing some other, not ne- not more important spots, but that can maybe use a little bit more of your versatility. I, being able to cover and getting him to play some corner early on really helps you be able to, to transition to a safety spot or a, a cheetah spot or something like that. It's easier to move outside in than it is to move inside out whenever it comes to the the secondary so i think that's a a great spot to start it all right quick time out we'll continue to hit some text messages on the other side 651-3439 we'll be back it is the rush on the ref sports radio network parker thune in the buffalo wild Wings studios teddy layman out at newcastle casino to the air comfort solutions text line we go right off the bat here 
405-651-3439 if you want to chime in. One listener on the text line says, when is Michael Hawkins supposed to commit at this point? Sorry if that's common knowledge, been out of the loop for a bit. We've been talking on and off about recruiting all throughout the show here on this installment of The Rush. And the reality is, I mentioned it last hour, there are a lot of kids right now in that 2024 class in the DFW area, especially on that northeast side where there's a lot of high-end talent that are just waiting on a decision from Michael Hawkins because there are plenty of those kids that are very, very high on Oklahoma. But I think, Teddy, that these guys all want to see the quarterback be the first through the wall to know that they're going to be teaming up with a guy that's truly elite at his position. And Jackson Arnold was the linchpin, naturally, for Oklahoma in the 2023 recruiting class. I get the sense Michael Hawkins is going to have a similar effect in the 24 class, especially given the nature of his relationships with guys like Nigel Smith, the four-star defensive lineman from Alyssa, Peyton Pierce, the four-star linebacker from Lovejoy, Eli Bowen, Peyton's little brother, the four-star cornerback out of Denton Geyer, Jaden mm. Hardy, four-star safety out of Louisville, Xavier Filsamy and Brian Jackson, two blue chips from McKinney, Texas. The list goes on, Teddy, but if, if and when the Sooners get their quarterback added to the fold, and I think that could happen in the month of March, there's going to be a boom, and it's going to come quick. So he, I, I'm, it goes without saying that he's uh, he's viewed very highly in uh, in recruiting circles among the players, right? Like his, yes. they really uh, really see some serious potential with him. Good, um, that's awesome. Hey, before we get back to the text line, I wanted to ask you about this kid because I saw that. He is, uh, let's see, was he ranked number five? He's ranked number six right now on 247. Uh, I think that's the composite overall, or maybe that's just 247. Anyways, linebacker Sammy Brown uh-huh. in Georgia. Now, I some people have asked me about this kid, and I, is is. I guess Georgia is maybe the lead for Sammy Brown, but Oklahoma's maybe got a shot at him. Is that is there any truth to that? Yes, Oklahoma's got a shot, but Georgia and Clemson are the top two there, and the kid does like Oklahoma. He likes Brent Venables. The question is, does he like him enough to venture that far out of his comfort zone when you got Georgia right up the road, you got Clemson right up the road, not much more than an hour and a half away. It's an uphill battle for Sammy Brown, but that I mean, if you're talking about an ad on the recruiting trail that would get the nation's attention as far as Brent Venable's ability to recruit linebackers to Oklahoma and not just to Clemson, that'd do it, Teddy. Yeah. That'd do it. I just don't know how realistic it is right now. I was also told that Ted Roof coached his dad. Is that right? Oh, it's interesting. I just... I don't question that that's true. I don't – offhand, I, I, I'll be honest, I didn't know that, if that's true. Yeah. Uh, so that would be – I know Ted Roof is obviously a Georgia guy, played at Georgia Tech, coached at Georgia Tech, grew up in Georgia around the Gwinnett area, I believe. So yeah. that, that would make a lot of sense, Ted Roof having some geographical ties to that area. And, hey, maybe Ted Roof ends up being the Sooners ace in the hole in that recruitment, much more no so doubt. than people realize. And no doubt. I know he's, he's supposed to – this kid, 
I, I've just, like, read through his measurables and stuff, and it's like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. When he was a freshman, he, was, he wasn't he was a kid that was hard to miss, especially with the stuff that he was doing in the weight room. He's like, okay, that's, that's not something a kid that young is supposed to be doing. Uh, okay, Teddy, I've had a few people text me about this over the weekend, and I'm mm-hmm. curious to hear your thoughts. There is a growing belief that Florida might be a permanent opponent on OU's SEC schedule. What if yeah. that were to come to pass? I'd, I'd love that, I think. I, I love the thought of it right now. I guess that could always change. Like, after a couple of matchups, it's like, oh, my gosh, do we have to really do this every year? But, I mean, if, if you're playing a name brand like Florida – Every other year you get to go down into that just honey hole of recruiting and whip up on the Gators. and I, Yeah, I, I'm all for it. I think that would be amazing. Now, is there really a, a, a growing thought that that's going to be the case, or is this just like a couple of people have – what was it? It was Andy Staples that came out with something that said that that was – like what he would like to see, and is it just that he did that and everyone's kind of taking it and run with it, or is there actually something to report there? No, I, I don't know if there's anything to report yet, and it's all kind of happening behind the scenes right now, but to my understanding, uh, there is there is some belief at the administrative yeah. level that Florida could be one of OU's three permanent SEC opponents, which, hey, if that's the case, that's awesome. Give me Florida every single year. Give me a trip to the yeah. swamp. Every other year. I think the, obviously those are the two of the most storied programs in all of college football. And if you're not going to get an annual matchup with an Alabama or a Georgia or even an LSU, Florida is about as good as it gets in the SEC. And it also gets you out of the geographical pigeonhole in a sense because everybody kind of figured initially that OU's three permanent opponents were going to be Missouri, Arkansas, and Texas for geographical mm-hmm. reasons. Texas is obviously locked in. That game is going to be played every single year. Texas is one of your three permanent opponents. But beyond that, if it's Arkansas and Florida, man, you get a battle that's going to pay dividends on the recruiting trail with a program just a couple hours away in Arkansas, and you get the opportunity to go toe-to-toe with Florida, especially given that Venables and his staff have such deep ties in the southeast. Yeah, I think in a holistic sense – those are two matchups that, although they are very different and on different ends of the spectrum, are both going to be really good for this program's bottom line. Yep. Nope. I agree. What else we got on there? We got time for one more? Uh, yeah, we can do – let's do one more here. Uh, everybody have, has been periodically chiming in about the NBA All-Star Weekend. I guess – was it Mac McClung? Did he end up yep. winning the dunk contest? He won the dunk contest. Wasn't he yeah. in the G League like last week? He's still in the G League. <laughs> yeah, he's... Uh, dude got the call up, dominated the dunk contest, and then right back down, huh? Yeah, he was a. Um... Well, I don't think he got called up. I think he came from the G League to do the dunk contest, didn't he? Really? I think so. Now I could have that totally wrong. Um, I may have that wrong, but. You know, he was he was a big sensation in high school with some of his in-game dunks. Um, and then, you know, 
we got to see him a little bit for one year there at Tech whenever he transferred to Tech. Uh, kid can absolutely fly. It was pretty cool. I mean, he he had so what he did perform four dunks. I think that were all top notch. Really impressive, especially from uh, from a shorter guy. They always look better the shorter you are. But I I, I he won it. Okay, but was it the Sims guy? Was that the the dude that was sticking his shoulder into the rim? Like to me, that was by far the most impressive thing that I saw. Sticking like the, his shoulder in. Oh the my gosh, dude! You got to see it. You know, you've seen the Vince Carter where he goes oh, up of and dunks it. Yeah, he does it and puts his entire arm in, and then he does it and does both elbows. Where I his like most of his head was above the rim in every dunk that he did. It was crazy. That was to me the most impressive thing, but it was still cool. Like I thought, I thought Mac McClung did a really good job, and it was nice. I, I'm a big dunk contest fan, and it it makes me feel good whenever I see a good contest that that draws some energy. So that was good. All right, quick time out. We'll come back and wrap up hour number two next. Stay tuned. Rush is back. Just a quick minute or so here before we hit the. Top of the hour. We've got hour number three coming up next. Um, I think next hour we got to get into some of these proposals for speeding up the college football game. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where you fall. If if you're one that feels like the games absolutely need to be sped up, if you're fine with how they are, you actually would prefer that they stay the way they are. I don't know, but seems to be that there's a, a growing growing group that wants to speed things up to kind of bring it a little more in line with the tv windows and and the game times that you see in the nfl uh big roadblock right away is the 20 minute halftime compared to the 12 minute halftime for the nfl like if you're ever going to make up any ground it feels like that's going to be the place that you do it everything else maybe is just going to be um a little bit but We'll explore some of that, and I don't know, man. I'd like to hear from the text line. Is everyone, are they just that long? Is it something that you just can't handle? I don't know. Maybe it is. All right, quick timeout. More from the rush coming up. Hour number three is next. Rushes back, hour number three. Teddy Lehman here, Parker Thune, back in studio, hanging out today, Newcastle Casino, I-44 exit 107, outside the Front Row Sports Bar. Happy hour every day from 3 to 6. Come out and see us. Uh, hit the text line, 651-3439, because I'm going to need some feedback on this. Um, the NCAA is in talks there's been multiple proposals put forward to try and speed up some games. Um, they've looked at a couple. There, there's been a um, there's been a study that's been out there that they've they've kind of gone back retroactively and applied some of these 
uh, options to some games to see exactly what would, uh, how much time they would save and, and what would be feasible and what wouldn't. Um, the, the one that seems to be most likely, I guess, oh, I don't know whether or not it's most likely or not, but the, the clock running after an incomplete pass um, seems to be the one that would eliminate the biggest amount of time that transpires. Um, now, the running clock after the first down uh, supposedly would eliminate seven to nine plays a game in this study that they did in a uh, a running clock after the incomplete pass would double that number. So it would eliminate between 14 and 18 plays in a game. Um, we have a problem with the length of college football games. No, does anyone, Teddy? I mean, here's the thing. And I'm a baseball guy. Like, baseball was my sport much more than the rest growing up. Um, I was very much into baseball, and I was one of those baseball purists that didn't want to see the pitch clock or any of that. So I I don't like that for the sport of baseball, but I understand it. Not everybody has the attention span to yeah. sit through an entire baseball game. I, I don't know if you could convince me, Teddy, that there is anybody sitting at home wondering, gosh, I wonder when this college football game is going to end. Yeah. Gosh, I wish they'd speed these games up. Is that an actual thing that's happening? And I know money runs the world. I know this is about the almighty dollar more so than anything yeah. else. This is about TV networks being able to air more commercials and hit more breaks and uh, be able to Actually, transition more seamlessly. in the study, they found that uh, commercials don't have much of an impact on the length of the game. Well, yeah, I mean, naturally they don't. But the TV networks make time to air commercials right. during the game. Right, so um, that that stretches out the game. Somebody already mentioned it on the text line. Um, commercial timeouts have more impact on the length of the game. Somebody else said. It's actually not true, though. In this study, they studied the length of the games and games that were not televised were only, on average, two to three minutes longer. Interesting. Yeah. The big thing that comes up, the reason college football is tends to be so much longer than the NFL, it, it comes down to a handful of things. It comes down to the, the halftime, which is longer, the stopped clock after first downs, the uh, incomplete pass, and the amount of reviews. In the NFL, they've got the coaches' challenge system, and then the, the two-minute system, right, where everything's reviewed. In college, any questionable call is reviewed, and it slows down the game drastically, and the number of reviews per game has only gone up because you've got the targeting reviews. You've got, like, any time something happens, they can be buzzed from upstairs, which is another something that they've discussed is possibly going to a coach's challenge type of system, which... I think I would be down for. Well, I know it's always frustrating whenever you're out of challenges and something egregious has gone down and you'd have no way of changing it, but in the sake of like not reviewing every single thing that happens, I don't have a problem with it. Well, and where I stand as far as 
all the reviews in the sport of football is I think what the NFL has done with the expedited review these yes. days is super helpful because well, the XFL is even better. Well, and there there have been instances, and there always are instances, right, where the referees make very obviously what is the wrong call on the field. Like you see mm-hmm. one replay and you're like, okay, that was the wrong call. He had the second foot in bounds or that ball hit the ground, whatever. Okay, quick overturn. No worries. There are some plays, Teddy, where I'm just like, I'm convinced it's more trouble than it's worth to review them. Perf- perfect example would be Devontae Smith's catch in the NFC Championship game, the one-hander that he reeled in on the sideline. They showed yeah. that play on the TV broadcast from like 20 different angles, right? And half of them would have suggested, okay, he caught the ball. The other half would suggest, no, that ball hit the ground or it was moving when he made impact. Either way, it's legitimately a 50-50 call, and it's one that you can scrutinize for hours and days on end and still have no more clarity as to what the correct call would be. So I think there are some instances in which reviews are entirely superfluous and or more trouble than they're worth. Yeah. But I think whatever can't be solved with an expedited review, to me, just make the expedited review the standard and give the coaches an extra challenge. Give them three challenges a game. So that, that way, if there's a call that they strongly believe is incorrect – and it isn't solved by the expedited review, they can throw the challenge flag. But we don't need to be having replay reviews three or four times a quarter in football. Well, I, we don't need reviews where the official has to jog 80 yards down there <laughs> every single time to look at a, a tiny little screen. Number one, it's stupid that he has to go look at it every time. Number two, are you telling me that someone can't run a screen out to him like a little handheld screen if he absolutely must see it? Uh, it uh, it's it's endlessly frustrating. But to the original point, like I don't, I don't think whenever people watch a game on television, they necessarily feel like it's too long. I think maybe whenever you're, you're at a game crammed in with a hundred thousand people it's 95 degrees outside and a 230 kick and the game goes four hours and 10 minutes i think maybe that's that's the case but i don't know i guess maybe it's uh it's always been something that's been complained about but i don't know that it's like people are going to complain about everything i'm i'm guilty of that i complain about everything you know just like everyone else does but I don't know that it it reaches the point of something's got to be done other than the ridiculous process for reviewing plays. Like, I I don't necessarily feel like you have to change the the way the clock stops in college football. Um, I wouldn't mind if they just kept that the way it well, the way it is and maybe shorten the halftime a little bit. Like that, I really don't even care too much about. I mean, it's. If you want the band to perform, let the band perform. I really don't care. But the review, my goodness, that we can speed up. That's easy That's easy uh, real estate there on your TV guide that we could easily speed the game up. On the Air Comfort Solutions text line, one listener says, games are not too long. For the love of God, just leave it alone. Another says, stop trying to shorten the game if you don't want to watch football. Stay home, brother. Yeah. Another says, I like it the way it is, 
I'm sure the reasoning is to allow more time for more commercials and thus more money. The overall time allotted for the game will probably stay the same. And Now, I don't know for sure, but again, I'll reference the article I read, which referenced the study, the multi-year study that's been going on. The television and commercial timeouts have little to no impact on the length of the games. So... Elsewhere on the text line from the 918, what makes a football game so long is an official who is flag happy, throws one when a player farts too loud, stop calling unnecessary penalties, which prolong the game. I've never been flagged for that. (laughs) However, um, well, maybe I shouldn't get into that. Maybe, Maybe there's a better time to tell that story. Oh, boy. Now I'm intrigued. Uh, I almost thought I was going to be flagged for something worse than that. Oh, boy. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell you the story. I know people have – I think I've told told it on air to Tyler before. I think I was – I think it was my rookie year. It was either my rookie year or my second year playing in Minnesota. So we're inside, uh-huh. right, in the dome. And opening kickoff, we return for a touchdown. And – I was the center on the kickoff return team. And we had uh, me and the guard on the left side had a double team. Uh, Wally Rayner, great guy. Oh, you we, know Wally? Yep. Oh, I know Wally too. He's How a great do you team. know him? You, yeah, so his kid is a three-star, borderline four-star safety in the class of 2024. So I've run into Wally. He's So he trains kids now. Um He's not only got his son, but he's got several other kids that are going to be Power 5 guys in the classes of 24 and 25. So I've run into him at so many camps. He's got enormous hands, man. I don't know if every if that's just the case with every NFL huh. player, but my gosh, first time I shook that dude's hand, his hand just like engulfed mine. Wow. I, that, I, that is shocking that you know him. Um, where did – so he played at Virginia, he right? He still lives in that area. He still lives in that area. Okay. Uh, I love that guy. He, what an amazing teammate. Anyways, we flattened the guy that we're double teaming. Okay. So uh, Eddie Drummond is the returner. Had a great year. I think he made the Pro Bowl this year uh, returning. Uh-huh. So he breaks it down our sideline. So after we knock our dude down, I release up to get the safety that's coming back across the field to try and go over and make the play. And I turn on the gas, buddy. I'm going as fast as I can (laughs) uh, down the sideline chasing Eddie Drummond to try and get this dude on the angle. And strain a little too hard going full speed, okay? And you can see me on film because I'm, I'm like full stride and going as fast as I can. And then I just pull up. I stop because I, I feared that I had overexerted myself and uh, maybe had a situation. Oh, no. And here's the thing. It was the first play of the game. All right. We're inside. So, like, there's no, like, oh, yeah, well, you know, rolling around in the mud. That's the issue. Like, and I can't really check. So I play the entire first half not knowing. Like, am I being zoomed in on? Is the broadcast <laughs> laughing at me? What's going on here? Uh, I tried to 
you know, tried to act like there was nothing. I didn't want to draw attention to it or anything. I probably should just ask somebody. But we go in at halftime. There was nothing to worry about. I was fine. Oh, no. Bet okay. you got shootout and film study, huh? No, it was a touchdown. It was fine. Uh, but, you know, you could just <laughs> – I told everyone what was going on because you could see me just flat up just go straight into a jog from full speed. Pretty funny. Dang. Okay, so God. I – Wally Rain, what a dude! You tell him I said hello next time you see him. Oh, you know I will. Um, I forgot how we got there. Do you remember what conversation we were having before we yeah, got off? Yeah, someone that? throwing a flag for someone farting too loud. Okay, there it was. Yep. Um, no. I don't know if penalties have as much to do with it as the endless re- replay reviews. To me, like that's. I, I, I would safely conclude that you could probably skim eight or ten minutes off of an average football game if you expedite the replay reviews. And again, what the NFL has done recently in that regard is awesome. Hopefully that catches on. But to me, once again, Teddy, I don't know if football is a sport that you need to shorten just because yeah. I'll recycle the example of professional baseball. Naturally, baseball is a much more slow-paced sport. Mm-hmm. football is much more frenetic. So even though a baseball game is similar in duration to a football game, there's far more to keep the average fan engaged on a minute-to-minute basis than there is in baseball. And so I, I don't know that any fans are clamoring to get football games shortened. Again, I think this is something that is happening at the administrative level. Yeah, I think it's – I think it's um, when – it's almost luck of the draw with the officiating crew you get and just, like, how many qu- – like, you can have a game where you have one review on a catch, no targeting, nothing. It's played fairly quickly, right? But then you can have a game where just for no fault, really, of the officials, you just have four or five plays that – are reviewed like scoring plays or catch out of bounds and maybe you have a penalty thrown on a targeting that needs to be reviewed like you it, i think it, a lot of it is just kind of luck of the draw whenever you have a game that's gone bad and it pours over that four hour mark like that four hours for a football game that is a really really long game so but yeah i'm i kind of i tend to agree that i I don't really – I think once, maybe once a year, something like that, you get a game that's like, oh, my gosh, this is ridiculous. But for the most part, I feel like our games have gone pretty quickly here recently, at least not horribly bad. All right, let's hit a quick timeout. More from the rush coming up. Keep hitting the text line. We'll get to some of those next. 651-3439. Stay tuned. Rush is back. Teddy Lehman here. Parker Thune back in studio. Newcastle Casino, I-44, exit one zero seven uh we got happy hour going on three to six every single day here at the front row sports bar ladies working the bar are awesome too uh come see us out here at newcastle um what's the next big date for recruiting junior day coming up or they already they already had that didn't they they had their first big junior day at the end of january the next big visit date is going to be march 4th so march 4th and march 25th 
are big junior days. Uh, March 4th is going to be primarily 2024 guys. March 25th is going to have some 2025s and even some 2026s. Uh, but some of the big names that are going to be in town on the 4th of March include Will Nguyenary, the five-star defensive lineman that we've talked about. Kellen Lindstrom, another big-time defensive lineman out of the state of Missouri, just publicly confirmed his visit today. A guy I really like, Javarius Green, wide receiver out of South Carolina, son of longtime NFL wide receiver Willie Green, who won two Super Bowls in the 90s. He's going to be in town, doesn't have an offer yet, a guy that could be an offer guy in the not-too-distant future. Uh, so that, that list is already huge, and it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So March 4th, a big day for Oklahoma to get stuff done on the recruiting trail. Nice. Um, good stuff. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I, you know what? Did I saw that they're starting spring ball late, March 22nd. Is that yep. right? March 22nd is the date. I got to tell you, I – love that they're starting it that late you know we've seen a lot of times they'll they'll come and get a a handful of practices in before spring break then you take spring break then you come back get into it and um you know off you go this is so much better we need all of the time we can get in the development strength and conditioning phase so I love that they're going to give a couple extra weeks there to Schmitty where he can run that the, that program to its full length. I also love, you know, that number. What was it? Was it like 53 of 76 or something like that of roster guys, scholarship guys that played in the Alamo Bowl no longer here? Uh, portal, graduation, NFL, whatever. I, th- we still have a ton of newcomers. We've got portal guys that just showed up. We've got uh, early arrivals from the 23 signing class. The longer you have with those guys just doing some of the small-time football stuff where you're kind of out there on the field walking through some things, they have some time with them. I don't think they can have a football out there, which is the dumbest rule ever. But, um, you know, the more time that you have just getting everyone a little bit more up to speed before you go – full in on spring practice i think is 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 needed and good i i love it we don't need to be in any rush we got all spring to do it let's push it back get everything squeeze everything we can out of the strength and conditioning get these guys a little bit more up to speed on the offensive defense for the for the new arrivals i love it i think it's a great way to do it Talk a little bit, Teddy, because obviously as a former linebacker, I defer really all conversations surrounding the linebacker room to you. But talk a little bit about the linebackers because especially once Phil Pachotti showed up to media sessions last Thursday at six foot three, two 237, that's what OU had him listed at in their initial measurements, and that was before they started winter workouts. Uh, been a lot of positive buzz about that guy. He's a player that – has obviously had the fans talking for quite some time. Uh, you add him to a room that already includes Kobe McKenzie, Kip Lewis, Shane Witter, in addition to the three big horses and Desal McCullough, Danny Stutzman, and Jaron Kanick. What, what more than anything else are you looking at as far as the linebacker room specifically throughout the spring? Yeah, uh, I think it's interesting. Uh, Stutzman's coming back. He's the, uh, he's the lead dog, right? 
Um, now, I don't think anyone's locked a, a spot up on this team. I mean, that goes for everyone. Now, percentage chance that Stutzman's a, a starter, like we're not talking injury or anything next year, 99%, right? Uh-huh. But but you still got to factor in that there's, there's active competition going on. I think Stutzman's going to be your starting will backer. Now, the interesting position group is the Mike Backer spot. Um, and we got to say Cheetah as well, uh, because Deshaun McCullough is going to be playing the Cheetah spot. And uh, there's a lot going on here. So the Mike, Canick, Kobe McKenzie, and Pachati are the three names that I think are going to be vying for that spot. Which is a little scary. I think Kanick is going to turn into an outstanding young linebacker. I think Kobe McKenzie's made up a lot of ground from where he was whenever he first showed up. And he's got a chance to be a thumper in the middle. And Pachati also coming in is a guy that you know, he looks the part right now. It's going to be rough, though, as a freshman. But you've got zero experience mm-hmm. with your Mike Backer position. Yeah. Um, I think, and, and I, haven't, I haven't talked to Coach Venables about this. It's just a hunch the way I look at the depth chart right now. With Harrington at Cheetah, I think Harrington is set to have a really good year whether it's Cheetah or wherever he plays. Uh, with Pearson, uh, you know, six-year kid, played a ton of football, super physical, super smart. And then Peyton Bowen. Like Whenever you look at those names there, I, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that if Mike Backer, these young guys, can't get right, that you may see Deshaun McCullough play some Mike Backer. Um. You also heard Venables in his press conference say that, you know, if if something happens, like he likes the team, he likes the group right now, he really does. But if something should happen and, you know, there's an injury or something like that, they may look at a post-spring transfer portal at inside backer. So I think, that, I think that's telling us that watch that Mike backer spot. And if they can't find someone that is reliable there i think there's some maneuverability that they still have up their sleeve uh at the cheetah spot with maybe moving mccullough over to mike and maybe hitting the transfer portal post spring but i I think it will stutzman's going to be your guy um i think witter is probably going to be working there i think kip lewis is is going to be working there um Omasigo probably working both spots. Yeah, that kid's missing? good. That yeah, kid he is. is good. Lewis Carter is the other one. Lewis Carter probably, like, which most of all of these guys will be working both Mike and Will to some degree. Uh, a, 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 special, a special specialization in one, but working both of them to try and, you know, get to that, that perfect mix. But I don't know it, Mike. Um, you know, the fact that Kanick has bumped into Mike, and we're not hearing his name at Cheetah. I, I don't think that that's anything to, to get worried about. 
I just think that, you know, you heard Venables. The kid had – this is the first time he played linebackers when he came to Oklahoma. It, it, it's a lot, all right? There's, there's a steep learning curve. I don't know how many true freshmen over the years of, of coaching that Venables has had – that have been able to step in and win win jobs. I'm not talking about you're playing a true freshman because, like, you just don't have uh, good good guys at that spot, and mm-hmm. you're you're doing it out of necessity. Like, I don't know how many guys have come in as true freshmen in one spots, and I'm sure it's happened a, a couple of times, a handful of times, and I'm sure circumstances help dictate that. But I I I have no worries about Canick over the the long haul and. The kid, he's got four years of eligibility right now, and I know that everyone is just, like, stressing out about the kid getting on the field. Just give us some time. He's going to get out there, I assure you. So, by the way, uh, you talked about the roster turnover, and here's my favorite little factoid about just how thoroughly Brent Venables and his new staff have overhauled the roster. You know how many scholarship defensive backs are left in the secondary right now? that were Alex Grinch recruits? Are we counting, like, Key Lawrence as a transfer portal guy? No. Okay. No. Transfers don't count. And even uh, so, yeah, well, I guess Lawrence would have been Grinch. Yeah, okay. But, no, like, recruited out of high school by Alex Grinch. You know how many defensive backs are left on this roster? Jaden Davis? Jaden Davis was a Mike Stoops guy. As was Woody Washington. Yes. Okay. And so, if you're talking about scholarship defensive backs, and again, that also excludes Justin Harrington because he's a walk-on at this point. There are none, Teddy. Zero. Wow. Zero. Yeah, I was sitting here trying to think. uh, I know this last round we had a couple of guys transfer out that it's like that may have been it. Wow. That's wild. Yeah, one of the biggest – I mean, you look back at the recent recruiting classes for Oklahoma – and there have been some big whiffs. There have been some hits, but there have been a lot of misses. And I don't think there is a class that positionally is more of just a total abject whiff than the 2020 class at defensive back because that yielded four blue-chip guys in Josh Eaton, Bryson Washington, Justin Harrington, and Kendall Dennis that have combined to start zero games at Oklahoma. Three of them Mm. ended up transferring to G5 schools. One of them tried to transfer, had no takers, and ended up back at Oklahoma as a preferred walk-on. Dang. Well, yeah, that's interesting. Which that class just kind of all around is is interesting for for a bunch of reasons. you know, they did get some um, some good play out of uh, a group of guys, but, man, there's there's some other – like, I'm pretty deep down the list right now, and you're not getting a whole lot of play from – No, man, like, you're still waiting for Nate Anderson to do something. Um, Trayvon West transferred out. Brian Darby transferred out. So, Mim, so the, the like, the biggest players that you got, Mims, Rain. obviously, Anton Harrison – and Andrew Rame. Outside of that, we're we're still waiting on guys, or they're gone. Perrion Winfrey was in that group too, but was he? He's a junior college guy, he was right? A JUCO. Yep, Iowa Western. Yep. Um, and I think uh, 
Justin Harrington's in that group. He was a ju- uh, junior college guy too. That's crazy, man. That's wild. And you got a guy in DJ Graham that technically played defensive back under Grinch, but was recruited as a wide receiver and is now back to playing wide receiver. That's one guy I'm particularly intrigued with heading into spring. How good is DJ Graham and how ready is he to step in at wide receiver? Because the guy is very athletically gifted. And from everything that I have been told, everything that I've seen in some of the limited access that we got towards the back half of the season uh, in 2022 at practice, it's a guy that looks pretty at home at the wide receiver position. Yeah. Hmm. Good stuff. All right, let's hit a quick timeout. More from the rush coming up. Let's hit some more text messages. Uh, guys are doing a good job. 651-3439. Keep it up. We'll be back. Rush is back. A couple segments left here in hour number three. Teddy Lamb and Parker Thune hanging out in Newcastle Casino today. Uh, you got any position battles you're looking forward to over the spring? Anything that, that you see um, maybe some uncertainty as far as who's going to be the guy maybe moving forward? Yeah, well, I think the two positions that I'm primarily looking at in that regard, Teddy, and one's a little bit more broad than the other. I mentioned cornerback. Like, who starts opposite Woody Washington? Is it Gentry yeah. Williams? Is it Kanai Walker? Is it Makari Vickers? Is it Jaden Davis? I don't know, and I think that's going to be uh, an intriguing battle for that for the rights to start opposite Woody, who no doubt is going to be locked in as one of your starting corners based on his body of work and just the reality that he's one of the more seasoned and polished defensive backs on the entire roster, if not the most seasoned and most polished. Now, the other, and I think it was Tyler the other day that I was having this conversation with. Look at the offensive line right now. Teddy, you're having to yeah. replace three starters in Anton Harrison, Chris Murray, and Wanye Morris. But at offensive tackle, you got Walter Rouse, you got Jacob Sexton, you got Tyler Guyton. You can only pick two, right? Similarly, at offensive guard, you got Jake Taylor, you got Savion Bird, you got McCade Mattire, you got the Miami, Ohio transfer, Caleb Schaefer, who is a large individual. And a four-year starter at that. You can only pick two. So there are going to be guys that just don't have a spot on that offensive line. And it won't be for lack of talent because all seven of those guys that I mentioned are capable of starting. And I really do think Caden Green has the potential to put himself in that conversation as well by fall camp. But you're only going to be able to start four guys at offensive tackle and offensive guard. We know Andrew Rames the center, but who are the guards? Who are the tackles? Uh, I think in in a perfect world, this is how I would uh, want it to be. Rouse at left tackle. Okay, I agree. Guyton at right. Okay. Savion Bird at left guard. Gotcha. And either Schaefer or Taylor at right guard. So you're out on Mattire. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And then I think, obviously, the other guy that we omitted there is Jacob Sexton, and he's coming off an ACL injury. Yeah. So not, not and, necessarily – I mean, not to say he won't play and won't contribute and may not even start in 2023, but you got to have realistic expectations for an offensive tackle who's coming off a major knee injury. I think that I would watch for Caden Green, perhaps – 
uh, at an interior spot. Mm-hmm. One of the guards. Um, not like I think he's eventually going to be a tackle here, right? But I think to get him on the field, uh, if he's if he's capable, if he's like to get the best five out there, I think there could be uh, maybe a chance that he's competing at one of the guard spots. I agree, and that's a guy that comes in with experience at all three positions, tackle, guard, and center. And Bill Biedenboe has told him, hey, be ready to rep and potentially play at all three of those spots. So I think the initial plan, you're right, is going to be for him to start at guard. But Caden Green is a guy that I fully expect will be in the starting lineup by Mm -hmm. day one in 2024. I just don't know where. And it could be anywhere. Yeah. Well, maybe left tackle, which, you know, you're you're one and done with uh, Rouse. So someone's going to have to take over that spot. Like that's a like there's and I think there's some really good guys in this 2023 class like some good I don't I mean I use this in a positive sense some projects in that group that could end up being some really really good offensive linemen. So I don't know. I think that I'm cautiously optimistic that you could have uh your five offensive line be as they play better than last year and maybe a good bit better than last year as a group. Like, I don't think there's going to be an Anton Harrison, right? Um, at least not, not next year. I think Tyler Guyton's got an incredibly high ceiling with how athletic he is and the size that he's got. But, you know, he's, he's got a long way as far as maturity comes and dialing in and being a guy that you can depend on for 75, 80 snaps a game. Uh Um, Same thing with Savion Bird. I think Savion Bird is, like, potentially, like, maybe the nastiest uh, interior offensive lineman in the Big 12 next year. But can you get get the consistency, right? Can, Can he get his assignment... Every single rep throughout an entire game, you know the physicality is going to be there. It's just the mental aspect of it. Can he can he come along and bring some consistency? If those things happen, and Rame has to stay healthy. Like, I don't know how much time he's missing again this offseason because of injury, but I, that's two offseasons in a row where like, his development is being stalled He's got to have a big year, man. He needs to get stronger. He needs to be more assertive, more physical. I think he can get there. I mean, he's he's got the potential to be a really, really good player. He just hadn't, for whatever reason, fully unlocked yet. You know what didn't hit me until last Thursday? You know who on this roster has spent more time in Jerry, Schmirk, or Jerry Schmidt's workout regimen than anybody else? Hmm. Do we have an A and M? We don't have an A and M transfer. Yes, we do. Blake oh, Smith, do? the tight end. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, old buddies with Smitty down from College Station, huh? That's right. And a guy that was originally recruited to A and M by Joe John Finley and Jason Llewellyn. I don't know how out there this is, but Jason Llewellyn's going to miss the majority, if not all, of spring ball. 
with an injury that he's recovering from. So in that tight end room, healthy right now, you have Austin Stogner, who's a one-year rental. You have Blake Smith. And you have Caden Helms, a guy that I think has a high ceiling but just didn't see the field a whole lot as a freshman and maybe needs to pack on some more weight uh, and get a little nastier before he's ready to step into a full-time role at tight end. you got Cade McIntyre coming in in June. He'll join the room. But uh, I, it was brought up over on OUinsider.com over the weekend that OU's usage of the tight end is going to be – well, it, it'll just be interesting to see how that shakes out going forward because yeah. obviously Braden Willis took the lion's share in the, of the snaps – in 2022, but in years past, you'd seen much more rotation at that position. Yeah, I'm interested to see how it goes. I do think you got a little bit different skill set there than we had a year ago with Braden Willis, but, um, you know, Stogner's a great pass catcher, so fascinating to see how it unfolds. All right, let's hit a quick break. More from the rush coming up. We'll wrap up hour number three next. I got a quick um, – a trivia question for you before we hit the top of the hour break. Oh, oh, I love me some trivia. Fire away. Do you know the largest ever cap hit for a single player in NFL history? Largest ever cap hit? No, I do not. $39 million is the largest ever cap hit in the NFL. That is about to change. Deshaun Watson's cap hit for the 2023 Cleveland Browns will be a staggering $54,993,000. Wow. That's going to be like a third of their entire salary cap spent on one player. Cleveland has essentially financially hamstrung themselves for like five years to come, haven't they? Oh, Because yeah. with this fully guaranteed deal that they handed to Sean Watson, they got a quarterback. They don't got a whole lot besides a quarterback right now. They're not winning. They're probably not going to win. At least they're not going to win enough to make actual noise in an AFC that has Kansas City and Buffalo that aren't going anywhere. Baltimore with Lamar Jackson. Jacksonville's on the up and up now. The AFC is a deep conference. Cleveland is an also-ran. And moreover, they're an also-ran that is going to be in dire financial straits in the years ahead. If, if I don't think they're going to. But if they don't, win and they don't make the playoffs if if something doesn't shake there in cleveland that may go down as like one of one of if not the worst move in nfl history considering all of the circumstances right yeah just I, like unreal I, and i think we all were kind of on the same page at the time too like everybody regarded that deal as utter idiocy by the Cleveland administration. It fully guaranteed the whole thing, paid him the whole year, the whole first year in cash up front so he couldn't be docked that number from suspension. Just in, incredible. Incredible how much money they paid and who And I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of people anywhere rooting for it to work out. 
unfortunately for them. All right, quick timeout. More from the Rush coming up. We've got the final hour next here from Newcastle. Rush is back for the final hour here from Newcastle Casino. It's been a good one, Parker. Four-hour shows, I typically um, I cower in fear whenever <laughs> I know I'm going to go on for four hours. But this has been pretty good. We've had some good text messages come in, which going to need some more over the last hour, 651-3439. But it's gone pretty good. Now, we were talking some position battles. We went through backer. We talked about some of the secondary stuff, offensive line. Now, let's talk about one that everyone's going to be really interested in, the most interested in, but probably the least movement, maybe. I don't know. Quarterback. What do you think is going to happen with Jackson Arnold? And, you know, Venable's comments from the podium last week, whenever he had the availability, said he's not waiting on anyone no. to be great. He's, he's coming right in, uh, chomping at the bit doing everything that he needs to do to get up to speed, to, to perform well. Uh, do you think that he makes any type of real challenge for the spot? Will he provide a real challenge to Dylan Gabriel? Yes. However, he, here's my thing. And everybody naturally is going to compare it to the Spencer Rattler, Caleb Williams situation in 2021. And look, I'm not going to disavow for a moment that Jackson Arnold has a much higher ceiling as a quarterback than Dylan Gabriel because he does. Jackson Arnold, look, Caleb Williams is by far the best quarterback I've ever watched at the high school level. I don't know if there's a clear number two, but Jackson Arnold's certainly in that conversation. The dude can do it all. And so if Oklahoma needs him to play in year one, he's going to be able to play. He's going to step in. He's not going to be in over his head. However, I don't think he supplants Dylan Gabriel in year one. That's not my expectation, Teddy, because I also think when you rewind to 2021 and you think about how it all went down, the transition between Spencer Rattler and Caleb Williams, Oklahoma had a very small margin for error, at least what what they everybody perceived as a very small margin for error because they were one of the two, three teams that was getting the most buzz preseason as a national title front runner. And so the Texas game rolls around. Yes, Oklahoma's 5 and 0, but they're a very lackluster 5 and 0. They get down big and well, guess what? At this point, if you want to keep your dreams of a national title alive, you got to throw Caleb Williams to the Wolves, right? And lo and behold, mm-hmm. he responds by leading the most memorable comeback in the history of that rivalry series and has himself a heck of a season thereafter, even though it did end with two losses in three games that left Oklahoma out of the playoff picture. But my point with that is that with Arnold coming in behind Dylan Gabriel, nobody's throwing around national championship hype. Nobody has that type of expectation for Oklahoma in 2023. So if Dylan Gabriel's leaving some meat on the bone, at the QB position, I don't know that that's that. There's that same urgency to make that change proactively from one quarterback to the next, the way that there right. was from Spencer Rattler to Caleb Williams in 2021. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, here's the thing: said a different way, probably not as well. You have to be more than just as good. 
you, you have to be more than even better, right? Because you're going in, we don't know what we have. Um, can you be trusted? Can you be consistent? Can you make in-game adjustments on the fly like a, like a vet can? So you have to be almost head and shoulders. Like, it has to be clear yeah. that this guy's better before you ever go in, right? It can't be close. Uh, you're always going to give the nod to the veteran there because of the experience factor. So you would have to be head and shoulders better where everyone knows it. It's just something that's like, hey, I, you know, I hate it, but this is what we've got to do. Um, now, if Dylan Gabriel goes out and plays poorly or plays, it doesn't even necessarily have to be poorly, plays average and some circumstances unfold to where Jackson Arnold gets an opportunity, whether by Dylan Gabriel rolls an ankle unseriously and doesn't play in the second half of a of an early non-conference game, and Jackson Arnold goes out and just balls out of his mind where everyone sees that, oh, this is something different. Like, that's whenever things get interesting, right? Um, but I, you know, I don't know about you, but I expect Dylan Gabriel to have, if if you can call it this, uh, a breakout season. Like he, I think he is going to be so much better this coming year than he was this past year, and I tie most of it. Now, now, someone has to emerge at wide receiver, right? Uh, sure. Off offensive line has to be you know, at least as good as they were a year before, like all of those things being equal. I think, you know, the, the extra year of experience, but I think because of Jackson Arnold, they are going to unleash the running game with Dylan Gabriel, and it is going to totally change what this offense looks like. And that's I, – I feel that's what a lot of folks are forgetting because in 2021, you had Kennedy Brooks – you had Eric Gray, but there wasn't as much of an insistence to lean on the run game that year as I think there will be in 2023 because mm-hmm. you have two guys in Gavin Sawchuk and Javante Barnes that are capable of being 1,000-yard backs. And my, my one bold prediction for the season that I put out there last month, I, I try to just throw one some sometimes relatively outlandish prediction out there every January for OU football. And my, my hot take – for this season, for OU football, is that you have both Javante Barnes and Gavin Sawchuk eclipse the 1,000-yard barrier. And if that's the case, that there's a few reasons I think that's going to happen. One, I think there's enough touches and enough yardage to go around, especially if you have greater game control than you did in 2022 when you had Eric Gray rush for nearly 1,400 yards all by himself. Right, but if you're leaning on the run game as much as I expect Oklahoma to in 2023, Dylan Gabriel shouldn't have to throw for 400 yards and four touchdowns week to week. All he needs to do is not cost you football games. The one instance, the one area of the game in which I think there could be a window for Jackson Arnold to potentially supplant Dylan Gabriel the way Williams did to Rattler in 2021 is if Gabriel starts to become turnover prone, if he starts to cost you possessions and cost you games because he's putting the ball in harm's way – then at that point, your hand is kind of forced. But that's not who Gabriel is. 
that's never been his propensity, and so it's not really something I worry about with him. Yeah, well, I I agree with everything you said, but I should have specified better. When I say the running I meant the quarterback run game with Dylan Gabriel. Interesting. I It's going to be drastically different than it was this past season. Um, they – they just we we got to see what the backup quarterback situation was like, you know. Um, uh, we did, and once we saw that, it's like we just we're going to run. We'll run Dylan Gabriel early in the game, but we cannot afford for him to go down. Absolutely cannot afford for him to go down. We've got to be overly cautious with it. They ain't going to be cautious with it this season. Dylan Gabriel is going to get a bunch of carries. He's going to be asked to to tote the football a bunch because of at least, you know, this may change if, you know, we go through spring and Jackson Arnold's like not even close. I don't expect that to be the case. Uh, If Jackson Arnold is what we think he is, Dylan Gabriel's number is going to be dialed in the running game a bunch. Get ready for it. It's interesting that you bring that up because – uh, everyone's favorite Texas propagandist, Ian Boyd, tweeted on Thursday, quote tweeted one of my tweets when I put out Brent Venable's quote about Jackson Arnold, quote tweeted it and said, one of my concerns for OU year, this year is that they'll run Gabriel more aggressively thinking, well, we have Arnold, then he'll get hurt and they'll have to play Arnold. So in case anyone listening wanted to know what Ian Boyd thinks of Oklahoma in 2023, He's worried that Oklahoma is going to feel like they're at more liberty to deploy the quarterback run. Yeah. Well, you don't want Dylan Gabriel to get hurt. Obviously, you don't. And a lot of this is like exactly how much of that do you get is really dependent on what exactly does Jackson Arnold look like, right? Because – Going into week two or three of the season where he's got a spring under his belt and a fall training camp, I mean, th- that's that's room enough to know what, what a guy is, but I, that's not very much time for a kid to get up to speed unless he's a flat-out baller. And I think there's a pretty good chance that Jackson Arnold could be exactly that. So I, they may not be fully... 100% all in on that right away, but definitely going to be a bigger share of the carries in the running game moving forward with Dylan Gabriel. 100%, yeah, without al- a doubt. And also, we talk about this, and we kind of termed it position battles when we opened this conversation. Look, I I don't really think this is a battle, at least at the outset, just because Dylan Gabriel is Jeff Levy's guy he did nothing last year to put his job in any jeopardy. But you also have to consider the possibility that this might become a battle down the line, not because Dylan Gabriel is that bad or because he's performing that poorly, but simply because Jackson Arnold is that good. In 2021, Spencer Rattler looked fine throughout spring ball. He looked fine in the spring game, made a couple of nice throws, looked fine throughout fall camp. But guess what was happening while all that was going down? Caleb Williams was knocking people's socks off in the Mm -hmm. Switzer Center. And so it may just turn out to be a case of, you know what? 
Jackson Arnold is that good of a player that he gets on the field in some garbage time situations early in the season, and you're going to have the folks that are sending in texts on the Air Comfort Solutions text line wondering, why on earth wouldn't you make the switch from Dylan Gabriel to Jackson Arnold now? Yeah. Well, that's... And, and I, I think part of the reason why you're going to see him eased into the collegiate game one way or another is because even with a guy that was as special and is as special as Caleb Williams, what happens as a true freshman in most cases, Teddy? Those guys hit a wall. For Caleb, oh, yeah. it happened in the month of November. Happens every single year for every single freshman. That's just the nature of the beast. Yep. You, you, you come in, you've got elite athleticism, you can get by with a couple of things for a little bit, but it's not very long with good teams, good coaches, that they figure out what exactly it is that you're going to do, and they take that away from you. And once they take that away from you and you're a true freshman, you don't have anywhere else to go. And it's just a disaster from that point on. And that's that's what Caleb Williams ran up against. And, you know, here's the good thing. I I – I think that there's a bunch of good things to take away from last year's season, and six and going six and seven is one of them. Um, I've said it a million times. I wouldn't have ever picked that. I wouldn't have ever wished that. But now that it's happened, I think I think it's a big benefit for us. Like it was painful, but we're through it. But now I think we're going to start reaping the rewards from it, and one of those is with Dylan Gabriel. I mean, you think about Spencer Rattler, and, you know, he had, by all accounts, a really, really solid 2020 season, and we're gearing up for a big year for him in 2021, right? Well, I think think there was a lot of complacency in that. And I know he had a five-star Caleb Williams coming in, but I think even Spencer Rattler would tell you that, you know, maybe the way he handled things wasn't exactly how he would do it if he had another another run at it. And when you come off of a six and seven season, I don't think anyone's coasting through the off season, right? No. So I think you know I think that just ties back in why I think that this could be a really really good year for Dylan Gabriel, but. You know, there's got to be a lot of other guys come along, and one of the spots is wide receiver. Right, we've got to have someone emerge as the go-to big play person. And I think guys will. It's just a matter of who it's going to be. I really like Nick Anderson. I think that kid has a very, too. very high ceiling. Uh, on the text line, one listener says, I forgot Ian Boyd existed, and now my evening is ruined. My apologies for that. Uh, hey, Teddy, on the other side of the break, can we circle around to the defensive line? A lot, yeah. of, lot of comments on the Air Comfort Solutions text line about the defensive line picture. Perfect. Let's do it. Quick timeout. More from the Rush coming up. Keep hitting the text line 651-3439. We'll be back. Rush is back. Teddy Lehman here, Parker Thune, back in studio. I'm hanging out at Newcastle Casino today. Come out and see us. I-44 exit 107. Hanging out at the Front Row Sports Bar. We've got happy hour every day, 3 to 6, with uh, really good drink specials here. So come see us at Newcastle Casino. Uh, okay, you wanted to get, or the text line, rather, wanted to get into some defensive line talk. What were the uh, what were the questions thrown out there? Yeah, well, I think it's just a lot of folks wondering what the picture looks like for Oklahoma as far as who the four starters are because you brought in a whole bunch of transfers. 
Got a whole bunch of exciting young guys, most notably P.J. Adebare, the five-star edge rusher out of Kansas City, Missouri. And then you got quite a core of incumbents coming back, and guys like Ethan Downs, Reggie Grimes, Isaiah Coe, Jordan Kelly, and what have you. So, And not to mention our Mason Thomas, who did some really nice things as a freshman a year ago. So I I really don't know. Like This is the one position group where – Really all offseason, I've just kind of been like, yeah, I, I really don't know who the four starters are. I don't either. Um, I think interior-wise, I think Isaiah Coe's going to be your guy, which I thought he he came on really strong last year. I think he's, he's, he's poised to have a really nice year. Um, Lacey, I think, is going to be a rotational guy. The, uh, the kid from Texas State, probably going to be a rotational guy. Um, Kelly, rotational guy, but I think Coe is your pencil-in starter there. Um, I'm not exactly sure who's going to be joining him. Oh, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. The freshman from last year uh, got some run, did some pretty good things. Grayson Halton. Yes. Uh, I like him a lot. I I thought he did some really good things as a true freshman. Um, He's going to get bigger. He's going to get stronger, faster. I think he could make a bit more of an impression this year and, and be a, a guy that rotates in quite a bit as well. The real story to me is what's going to happen on the edge. Because mm. you mentioned it. Last year we had Ethan Downs and Reggie Grimes. Our Mason Thomas uh, came in, had some good opportunities, but was more of a more of a spot rusher. And then what he had the hamstring issue there about what a third of the way through the season mm-hmm. perhaps and end up missing some time. But now you got Trace Ford. When healthy, he's a stud. He's a difference maker. You've got uh Bothroyd, who ton of experience, ton of production. Uh he's gonna be able to get it right away and be a dude that you can lean on right away. Uh, I thought Luulu had some some flashes last year where he did some really good things, and then you've you've got to throw in Adabare, which you know defensive line. People that have heard me talk, defensive line is one of the spots that, as a true freshman, you can play. We saw two different guys last year, and R. Mason Thomas and Grayson Holton. So. Um, I think Adobare will definitely be in the mix to some degree. How much? Yet to be determined, but I think he will be in the mix. So you got a full plate there. I don't know who's going to be the guys that end up getting the start. If I had to guess right now, (sighs) Bothroyd, start on one edge. And I don't know. I think I think it's going to be a battle between if Trace Ford is healthy, there will be a battle between him and Ethan Downs. Yeah, and Ethan Downs, I don't know if he gets his due for how good he was in 2022. For whatever reason, there's a real negative perception of the way that he played and statistically it doesn't seem like he had that much of an impact when you look at the box score but yeah that guy was as consistent as uh, as consistent a guy as Oklahoma had 
on the defensive front. The, the play overall was not great, so I know the bar is not high. But right. I don't know if Ethan Downs got a fair shake from the fan base for the way. Well, I don't played. think anyone got a fair shake when you go six and seven. There's not many people that are getting a fair shake out there. True, true. Now, I am very much of the opinion that you're not going to be able to bury PJ Atabar on the depth chart. Like it, it does not matter who else you have at edge. It does not matter how much depth you have at that position. That's a guy that's going to force his way onto the field. He's that. There is not an edge rusher right now on Oklahoma's roster that is as fast and can bend as well as P.J. Atabari can. There's a reason that kid is a five-star. There's a reason everybody that saw him at the All-American game just raved about his ability. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if there's a high school offensive lineman in the country that would have been able to to stand P.J. up in that environment. He torched everybody all weekend in one-on-ones. It was him and D.J. Hicks, man. Him and D.J. Hicks were the two most impressive players there. So I think he plays. I think he plays a good bit. I think R. Mason Thomas plays a good bit. Mm-hmm. I think Ethan Downs sees a lot of run. To me, it's the, the biggest question mark is the transfers because – transfers can be plug-and-play guys or they can be guys that you know the jump in the level of competition just eats them up and that's I think that's what I worry about with guys like Devon Sears for instance or a guy like Rondell Bothroyd right where maybe they've been productive in the past but what they're going to be faced with the matchups that are going to be in the cards for them in a place like Oklahoma versus where they were formerly lining up it's going to be a whole heck of a lot different and I also think there's there's a stigma when you talk about rotation on the defensive line, right? You talk you talk about rotation, Teddy. Everybody mm-hmm. thinks back to 2021 when Alex Grinch was running new interior guys onto the field. It seemed like every single down when it would have behooved everybody, most of all Alex Grinch, to just let Perry on Winfrey play as much as possible. So. I don't know that there are going to be many fans out there that are eager to see a ton of rotation, but I also think that with the depth you have on the interior this year, you're going to have a quality rotation. And I don't know that there's going to right. be tremendous drop-off in the level of ability when you sub out an Isaiah Coe for a Jacob Lacey or somebody like that. Well, you know it- – Everyone rotates their defensive line. The way you would like it to work is, number one, you go three and out, you don't have to rotate them, okay? Sure. Um, But aside from that, you'd like to get five to seven snaps, and that may be on the high end depending on what type of snaps they are, five to seven snaps out of your interior guys, rotate them out for three snaps, and then get them back in. Now, it, it can be difficult in, in college football because teams, when you wrote, like if you've got a big drop-off whenever your starters come off, they're not going to let you get those guys back on the field. They're going to stay in the same personnel, and anytime. Like you make a an attempt to try and get those guys off the field, they're going to hit the gas and go on you and not change their personnel. So you can you can kind of be stuck there. But whenever you get back into critical areas, you want your starters back out there. I mean, that's we had like 
I don't. I didn't mind what Grinch did, aside from whenever they we would be down in the red zone on third down, and you got Perrion Winfrey and Isaiah Thomas standing on the sideline. Like, let's let's get, let's get our rushers out there whenever we're in the red zone, man. We we want those guys on the field. So, um, no, I agree, and I think we're going to have a pretty a pretty solid. I I don't think there's going to be a whole heck of a lot of fall off. At least on the interior. Um, man, in a perfect world, I think you'd have – you would like to have Trace Ford and P.J. Adabari as your edge guys. Like, that's the perfect world. Yeah, I, and I think I agree with you on that. They, they, they give you the best size, athleticism, all, all things combined. Now, I just don't know – if Adabari is going to have the tool set to be able to be like an all all down, all situation, true starter. I just don't know yet. Like, I may see him in one practice and be like, uh, yeah, that's the dude. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I just don't know. Yeah. But so- I think I think Bothroyd is like right. I'd pencil him in as a starter right now. And that's just me. Yeah. Going off of like what I've seen from him. I haven't seen him play in this scheme, but he's a legit, productive, multi-year starter in a Power Five conference. Like he's, he's what he's cracked up to be. He's a plug-and-play dude. Now, if you can replace him with more athleticism, you do it. But it's going to be hard. Okay, I want your opinion on two guys that kind of fly under the radar. On the defensive line. Two guys that I don't think we've brought up at all in this conversation yet. One being Kelvin Gilliam, the other being Marcus Stripling. <sighs> Stripling is he's he's a he's solid. But solid is not gonna cut it with this group anymore. Uh-huh. Bingo. We we've we've upped the ante pretty quickly. To where Stripling was a guy that you can, you know, you, you're going to be a rotational guy. Um, you've got some, you've got some good assets. He's got some good athleticism. He's got a couple of nice move off, moves off the edge. But I, our Mason Thomas is smoother, got a better get off. He's a better just straight up pass rusher. So you lose out there. Bothroyd has the wealth of experience. He's He's a guy that's going to be, you know, grading out really high and has the grown man strength in the room. Um, Adabare is the guy that's, you know, he's the unicorn of the group. Like, no one else is going to be able to match what he's able to do athletically uh, with his with his physical gifts, not just athleticism, but just the traits he has, the, the arm length, um, those type of things. I being a solid guy is not going to get you on the field anymore on the with the way that this defensive line looks and that's ultimately where we want to be and that's if stripling has just tread water throughout this developmental phase like i think the the door is still open for him to make some big gains to be able to to read the writing on the wall with this this room all of a sudden and say um Coasting ain't going to get it anymore. Not to say that he was coasting. I just mean that uh, you're going to have to be able to go above and beyond. Um, who was the? What was the other name? Kelvin Gilliam. 
I just haven't seen him. Yeah. And I think that's, I, that's the issue is that he's missed so much time due to injury his first two years at Oklahoma that it's really tough to gauge how serious a player he's going to be for snaps on the Measurables injury. are insane, yeah. right? Yeah, he's they are. A, he's a gigantic first off the bus type of guy, but I've just I've I've seen a, a small handful of snaps from him that's just not enough to go off of to make any type of legitimate judgment good or bad. I mean, I think what you have to say is this is going to be a really big spring for him. Right? If if, if he's going to be able to get on the field, wants to get on the field, he's going to have to have a really good spring be really consistent, be healthy, uh, make some good gains, have some good showing in the spring, have a really solid summer, and fall camp to be able to get into the rotation. Yeah, I mean, I I think there are a lot of guys that fall into that camp where, you know, they, they can drastically improve their stock based on how they perform in the spring and the fall. I think there are some guys that are going to be locked into the rotation regardless. I think Ethan Downs is probably one of those guys, for instance. Yeah. I He's done enough Grimes, on the football the same, field. I mean, yeah, some of these guys have done enough on Saturdays that you know you can count on them to, at the very least, give you snaps. But we think back to last offseason, last fall camp. Our Mason Thomas had just gotten to campus in June. Nobody was really giving him much of a shot to see the field in year one, and all of a sudden nobody can block 32. And I, I'm guessing it's going to be – more of the same when P.J. Atabari gets to town, which, again, I I, yeah. I just think that guy is going to force his way onto the field because you don't have many guys right now in that locker room that have the sheer physical gifts that he has. And so if he's ready, man, if he is ready and, he, and his game translates the way I think it will, uh, he's going to be getting playing time at the expense of a lot of more experienced guys. Yeah. Um Another quick question, and I don't know if you got to got to see him the other day, or because someone asked the question about Ethan Downs maybe sliding inside because of how big he's getting, and I don't I don't know what what he's what his measurables are now. I don't know how much like I don't know is he is he two eighty now? Is like how big is he? Um, you know because. I mean, I think there is a chance that he could move inside, but he would have to get quite a bit bigger than what he is right now. He would. I mean, like for what you would – like he could play inside right now, absolutely, but I don't know that you you necessarily would want that. I I think we need to get – I want to get bigger and have some like some mass on the inside to be able to anchor and and push the offensive line back. Like we – We've been missing some size on the defensive line for quite some time. And now, if you're telling me Ethan Downs goes 6'6, 285, let's talk. Okay. But if he's still around that 265 number, then I'd prefer to keep him out on the edge. Yeah. And I, if he gets up to 285, 290, like if that's the case, again, sure, you can move him inside. I think he's got something to offer there. But realistically especially with the backdrop of the alex grinch administration at oklahoma i think a lot of fans would be more content seeing some 300 plus pound bodies on the interior yep 
No, I agree. I agree. All right, quick time out. More from the rush coming up. Stay tuned. A couple of segments left on a Monday here from Newcastle Casino. We'll be back. It is the rush on the Ref Sports Radio Network. A few more minutes here with you on a Monday. Parker Thune here in the Buffalo Wild Wings studios. Teddy Lehman is out at Newcastle Casino. Kind of doing an informal preview of spring ball today for the Sooners, going position by position is basically what we've ended up doing over the last hour and a half or so. Uh, Teddy, the Air Comfort Solutions text line has had all sorts of thoughts. Uh, We obviously just talked about the edge. One listener says, Ethan Downs can't set an edge. Another says, what has happened with Marcus Stripling? Another wondering, is P.J. Atabari going to be thick and strong enough to play in year one? And... Again, more more examples of people's I, I I don't think giving Ethan Downs enough credit. Um, with Marcus Stripling, as Teddy mentioned at the end of last segment, just the reality that he's he's just a guy in a room where you can't really afford to be just a guy if you want to see the field. And as far as PJ is concerned, it's funny. I was up at Lee's Summit North a couple weeks ago checking in with the guys up there, and <laughs> Jamar Mosey and I were laughing about it because. His team had scrimmaged P.J.'s high school team back in July, and I was out there, and P.J. was going toe-to-toe with Caden Green. At the time, they were both committed to Oklahoma. They'd both just been out at the Future 50, and we were reminiscing, Jamar and I, and Jamar was like, you remember that one play where P.J. got Caden underneath his pads and darn near picked him up off the ground, kind of tossed him to the side? I was like, yeah, that, that, that's hard to forget because Caden Green's 315 pounds of pure muscle, and so – I'm going to go out there on a limb and say that P.J. is going to be strong enough. I don't know if he'll be as thick as you would like, but right now he weighs 238 pounds, or so he told me at media sessions on Thursday. So that's a guy that has plenty of bulk, has plenty of strength, and can be an immediate player on the edge, assuming he beats out some of the veterans and proves that he is more deserving of those snaps than they are. Well... Setting an edge is, it's not easy, but there are a handful of of things that make it easier. Uh, Number one is being, actually not number one, in no order, being incredibly strong helps. Yep. Playing with great pad level helps but maybe the trump card above all else is having long arms if you are underpowered and undersized but have the longer arms of the two guys that are fighting for the edge the guy with the longer arms a lot of times can can win, can gain the advantage. Now, uh, smarter players that have experience know how to overcome that, and and they can. But if you've got the, the length, it makes it really hard for those guys to be able to block you. Now, you got if you can play low, you can come in with some physicality to shock the offensive lineman and then separate with the long arms it makes it almost impossible for those guys to recover. And 
if he's got one thing, I know he's got long arms in Atabare. The dude, <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. Oh, man, he's a creature. Uh, I believe his wingspan is seven foot two. So we're talking 86 inches of wingspan on that kid. And, you know, you talk, you talk about Ethan Downs. That is one thing that, for all he does have, that is one thing that Downs does not have. He does not have long arms. Uh, right. He's actually got a minus wingspan. I think he's yeah, six he's, foot four. His wingspan is like six two. Yeah, he's, he's big and he's strong, which helps, but the shorter arms is, is a drawback. Um, Adabare, like, that's going to be his biggest weapon, uh, is that the arm length. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a guy um, blur the line between, like, he can, he can be a stand-up edge guy that's in a three-point stance at the same time. I, there's not a lot of guys that can do that. That's how long his arms are. It's incredible. And I, if, if he takes the teaching and, you know, I, I like Chavis. I've got no reason not to like Chavis. Um, I want to see, I want to see what he's got in his coaching toolbox for Adabare. If, because with the right teacher, the right skill set, the kid can be a. I, there's there's no limit to what he can be, and I'm anxious to see it happen, man. I am. Yeah, and and everybody I would imagine remembers the clip that circulated on social media last spring of Chavis, right when OU had open spring practices, and he's out there chewing on his tobacco and yelling, "You you're not gonna play for me." If you're not violent, mm-hmm. and I tell you one thing P.J. Adabare is, is violent, man. Yeah. Violent. And so you get a guy like that that's got his head square on his shoulders, has all the physical gifts in the world, and just a relentless work ethic to get better. You know, it's funny. I, <laughs> this doesn't illustrate how much of a football guy P.J. is. Just all business. I don't know what does. I was talking with Ashton Sanders at media sessions on Thursday. And he goes, yeah, we all kind of hang out together in Headington. My room's kind of the uh, the spot for movies late at night. And we always just have PJ pick the movies because he hasn't seen anything. It's like that dude's <laughs> never seen a single movie in his life. That's great. That's great. Uh, to be young. Well, they need to make sure they're, he's seeing the right movies. Right? Well, of course. I could- I could maybe put a list together to uh, to make sure that his head's in the right spot. Uh, we don't want him because um, uh, he's in a great spot. We don't we don't need some bad movies aiming him down the wrong path. Okay, we make sure he's got some good content going. That's funny though. Wow, mm. he's uh, uh, a blob of clay ready to. Well, I guess that doesn't set the the, the picture right. <laughs> But you get what I'm saying. Ready yeah. to be molded into uh, into something special. I can't wait. Going to be awesome. Because we haven't had Parker. I can't think of the last time. Like, we've had some good players. But I can't think of the last time we've had the best edge guy in the league. And like you've got to have more than that, though. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. Stryker was the best edge guy, but. He was undersized, and like people could like he was he could run around guys. He he couldn't couldn't bull. He couldn't hold the edge. He was limited. You know, it's not his fault. He was limited. Um, 
Like, we haven't had a dude that's just locked down, get after the uh, passer, can hold the point against the run, and be backed up by a legit secondary and second-level players. Like, that's whenever you turn into, like, if you've got that across the front and you're just solid on the second level and third level, you're going to have a top 25 defense. I mean, that's just, that's it right there. Now, if you've got that on the front, you've got that that guy that can rush, maybe maybe another guy or two in there that are not elite but are, you know, right there among the top in the conference, and then you've got plus players on the second and third level, well, now you're starting to mess with being a, a top ten defense. So I'm excited. We've got some good possibilities. We just – Got to see if they can pull it together. All right, let's hit a quick timeout. Final break, and we'll come back and wrap things up. All right, been a fun day. Thanks for filling in, Parker. Tyler uh, takes more time off than anyone at the station. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Guy's got a vacation every other week. Uh, good job stepping in. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I think we hashed out any uh, roster issues, depth issues we have going into spring ball, so... These people just got to look for us uh, for all the answers. Yeah, we got good stuff, man. Got to file away the wide receiver conversation for another day. But gosh, we hit just about everything else. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and that's probably a good thing because I don't even know who who I would go to. I mean, I like Nick Anderson. There's some other good names in there, but just have to see how it emerges. All right, that was fun. Thanks to Newcastle for having us out. We'll see you guys tomorrow.